I'm on the right track for lots of kissing. So that old greenback, I won't be missing all the greatest things in life are free. Who needs money? Not me. Cash or credit, it doesn't matter. Long as my bank book keeps growing fatter. Easy Street is my favorite avenue. Who needs money? I do. Just pity all those millionaires, they never can relax Because they're always worrying about their income tax Why waste time on high financing? I'd rather spend it on good romancing What if pop... (laughs) Alright, that's enough of that shit This is Dr. Zahn and that was uh, Who Needs Money by Elvis Presley from the uh, soundtrack of the motion picture, Clambake. Clambake gonna have Clambake. Clambake gonna have Clambake. Hey, mama little baby love Clambake, Clambake. Papa little baby love Clambake too. Mama little baby love Clambake, Clambake. Papa little baby love Clambake too. Hey, listen, world, you gotta know I'm cutting loose and letting go I've got this feeling to be free I pick and chew life I want That's life on me Clambake gonna have clambake Clambake gonna have clambake <laughs> Hey, mama, little baby, love clam bake, bake. Mama, little baby, love clam bake too. Mama, little baby, love clam bake, clam bake. Papa, little baby, love clam bake too. Hey, all right. Well, let's get into the show. The the guts, the gist, the uh, bowels of Silver and Gold podcast. I didn't mean to start out the show <coughs> with such a musical uh, adventure, an interlude, if you will. But uh, what I decided to do is uh, I watched a movie this week which uh, kind of pertains to um, the uh, singer Elvis Aaron Presley. And uh, so I'm channeling Elvis right now as I start the podcast. I don't know why. Actually, what I was doing was I started uh, the podcast uh, by kind of testing out this the microphone again and uh what it was sounding like and stuff like that so i was trying to think of some stuff to uh say into the microphone to see uh what it sounded like i don't know if it worked or not i don't really at this moment i don't care i just want to get into it and get going um just uh not a lot going on um been watching some tv uh some uh movies some documentaries uh, reading some comic books uh, online, stre- not streaming, but like, uh, you know, through uh, on the Kindle. Um, let's see, what else? Um, hasn't been a lot of adventure. Um, just walk on by, wait on the corner, bitch. And um, so... 
nothing inspiring other than I did go to the theater and I saw a John Wick uh, 3 Parabellum. Uh, that was pretty good. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. I started to watch a movie last night because uh, I thought, well, I have the night off and uh, maybe I will uh, throw something on on Netflix. And I was not uh, real. What I started watching, I I kind of kind of had to pull the plug on it. It wasn't working for me. So, you know, I don't do that too often. But man, when something when when something you're in like 30 minutes into it and it was just kind of a. God, is this what this is? And, um, you know, we'll find out what that is later on, too. So I'm giving a little teaser. Give me a little teaser. Yeah, you like it, don't you? A little teasing. Mm. Bronski. I didn't watch any Charles Bronson this week, so uh, the Bronski thing. And I didn't watch Tom Hardy in Bronson. Um Let's see. Let me see what we got going on here. Maybe there's some some stuff going on on this Facebook with some of the friends. See if there's any any kind of intrigue or any kind of a. I'm stirring up some shit about uh, politics and stuff, but you know some of these people are just getting on my nerves because they're really dumb and they really don't have anything to say except you're a fucking moron. You know you're a fucking asshole. Blur, blur, blur. And, you know, I'm just kind of trolling, which will probably get me killed one of these days. I have a, I have a feeling that one of these days somebody's going to show up at the house and fucking murder me or whatever. Um, I don't know why I say that other than it might be true. I just saw that um, Windows, as of like January 2020, is not going to support Windows 7 anymore. So I guess we're all, if you do Windows, you're going to have to all switch over to the... Uh, to the old uh, 10, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. By then, you know, who knows if silver and gold will even be in existence. And if it is, it'd be, you know, it's not going to be a big deal to keep the fucking ball roll. <laughs> oh, man, it's just been hell. It's just life is hell. That's all there is to it. Um, just to get down to the, the brass tacks, the nitty gritty, the, uh, uh, I don't know stuff uh the movie the one movie that i started watching this morning that i really just could not get into was uh jersey boys from 2019 and this was uh directed by clint eastwood and it's based on i guess the play jersey boys about uh frankie valley and the four seasons big girls don't you know, I can't understand. You know, I used to listen to some of that stuff back in the days when I was like like the 50s and early 60s uh, music and things like that. And then, you know, um, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, um, they had some hits like later on. Of course, Frankie Valli did the, uh, uh, the um, theme to the movie Grease. And, um, oh, what was that other one that they had that was a newer song? Um Oh, what a night, late December, back in 63. You know, uh, that one was kind of like a comeback thing. And, uh, you know, so I, it's not that I didn't uh, listen to their music, but I don't know, man. This was just really kind of clunky and just, you know, I don't know. You had the characters, like, t- breaking the fourth wall and talking to the camera 
and it just it just was my god it, it to me it almost seemed like it could have been a uh, made for tv movie or something like that so you know i don't want to i don't want to uh you know judge it too harshly cuz i have not watched the whole thing and I, it's a almost a two and a half hour movie 2 hours and 20 minutes and so i guess i'll have to go back and finish it but it wasn't working it wasn't but maybe you know there's a possibility that it just wasn't what I I wanted or needed at that time. So let's go to the next film, which was uh, I watched again, uh, Only God Forgives from 2013 by Nicholas Weindinger-Reffen, uh, written and directed, starring Ryan Gosling, Kristen Scott Thomas, and... Uh, Vitaya Pansringarm. I can't sing the songs in this because I don't speak of the language. <laughs> the language. Uh, and uh, what's this deal? Page is unresponsive. Well, you just go to hell. Yayang Ratha Fonyam played May. Or my, uh, depending on uh, what, uh, you know, the little cum dumpster wanted to be called. Oh, that was such a brutal scene. This has, I would have to say, and I'm sure you guys know, uh, because I have probably have watched this so many times and talked about it, that uh, I must like this movie. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it was on Netflix, and so I went ahead and downloaded it to my iPad, and I thought, well, you know, I haven't watched that in a while, and I'd you know, maybe like to watch it again. And it was just as good this time as it was every other time I've watched it. It's just mesmerizing. I love the way it's shot. I love everything about this movie. Um, you know, when you say top ten movies or whatever, it's hard to say when you have, like, movies like uh, On the Waterfront or... Um, you know, movies like that that are just classics. Um, but as far as modern movies or movies from the past, uh, you know, so many years, this was 2013, uh, I would say uh, as far as movies that I have watched and rewatched, this has to be right up there close to the top because I've watched it over and over and, and it just, I love it every time. Uh I was reading some things about about it. Uh, I also like watching Refn uh, interviews. Ryan Gosling, not so much because he kind of uh, he tries to kind of work the interview for laughs and be silly and things like that. Um, Refn is a um, a fan of cinema, so he can speak intelligently about you know his likes and. Uh, what what movies from the past and and he's seen a shitload of fucking movies um but he was actually saying that the character of one eye in Valhalla Rising and the character of the driver in Drive played by Ryan Gosling uh one eye was played by um Mads Mikkelsen and the character that um oh what's his name this again i i have to look at uh vithaya uh panzringarm uh who plays chang uh the chief of police um that they're all the same it's kind of like all the same spirit 
I had heard somebody say at one time that uh, one eye in uh, Valhalla Rising was actually Odin because Odin would go to uh, Midgard and walk uh, the earth as a man in uh, mortal form. And um, so I'm not sure he was like 100% saying it was Odin, but he was saying that this was the same being or the same spirit that was inhabiting uh, all three of these, uh, you know, characters in his three movies, which would be his trilogy. Now, he might be talking out his ass, too. You know, I don't know. Um, I'm curious to see uh, Refn's, uh new TV show. Um, I wasn't. Um, it's going to be, I believe, on Amazon. So um, I'm not sure it's with with all the pay services these days. Uh, that are out there. Um, you know, I do have Netflix and of course YouTube has a shitload of everything on it, but I'm not sure I want to get into having Amazon, having Hulu, having, uh, Netflix, having Criterion and having, you know, a whole shitload. Now, you know, there's new and original content coming out on all these, but, uh, it's just, you know, who can afford to just, keep getting more and more and more, uh, you know, pay channels or whatever. Uh, I think it's going to get to the point where it is kind of oversaturated uh, and people, you know, everybody wants their piece of the pie as far as that goes. But uh, that pie is only so big. Um, It's called Too Old to Die Young. And that wagonist in that. So when I saw that, I wasn't really... Uh, super excited because I have not, it's not that I'm a, not a fan of his, um, with the exception of, um, um, whiplash. I haven't seen too many movies with him in it that I thought were that good. So maybe he just makes poor choices or, you know, I just don't dig the stuff that he does choose. Um, this is one thing it's, um, Created by Ed Brubaker and uh, Nicholas Finding Refn. Uh, stars Miles Teller, William Baldwin. Who else is in this song, bitch? Um, wah, 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 John Hawks, who I will be talking about a couple more times in this podcast. But it's a detective, Martin Jones. Uh, leads a double life as a killer for hire in Los Angeles' deadly underground. He suffers an existential crisis which leads him deeper into the blood-spattered world of violence. I don't know why Refn is going this route uh, by doing um, TV, doing a series, but I think this is actually only... It's one of those ones that's um, kind of like a little mini-series. I don't know if it's going to go any further than that because it looks like it's, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, like five. Oh, show all ten episodes. So maybe it will. I don't know if it's going to be a reoccurring thing. It's kind of looks like kind of like maybe it's going to be like a true detective kind of a deal. But so anyway, I'm curious to see what that's going to be all about. Uh, Valhalla Rising is one of those movies that... Um, I did not like it as much as Drive or Only God, um, but it's an interesting movie. 
I have not seen um, Refn's Pusher, but I saw the remake of it. Now, that doesn't mean anything. I didn't see the Pusher trilogy. I just saw the remake of the original Pusher, which was like a, an American version. I can't remember who did that one. And I, I think it was on. Uh, I think it was on Netflix, and I actually thought it was the Refn uh, uh, movie, but it wasn't. And I was like, "Oh shit, this must be a remake because this doesn't have Mads in it." And uh, and anyway, so as far as this turd goes, <laughs> let's, see, let's get a, a, an acronym: NWR. You know, I don't know if I want to call Refn. Uh, but like I said, I like him. I, I think he's kind of an interesting guy. Uh, Neon Demon, I believe I've said on the show before that uh, I that one was okay as far as the color and the uh, the way it was shot and everything was more. There were scenes in it that were like more stylized, like Only God Forgives. Uh, the one thing that I remember about that more than anything was that I like Keanu Reeves in it, and his part was not a big part. Um, I did hear that Refn did want to make a, uh, movie with Keanu Reeves, uh, recently, what was the one, there were a couple of, um, of movies that they were talking about that he wanted to do, uh, beforehand and they didn't come up, come, you know, through, um, with like Keanu Reeves and some other people that he really liked. Um, and, but let's see, I can't remember what they were. Just another night, just another night for you. Why did I start singing that? That's like a, uh, oh, Kenneth Angers. That's what they ought to do. Do a fucking movie about Kenneth Anger. <laughs> oh, he wanted to make a movie. That's what, the one I was trying to think of. I couldn't remember. Uh, he wanted to make a movie about Aleister Crowley uh, with um, Tom Hardy playing The Beast. So I thought that would be kind of cool. I can't remember what the Keanu Reeves one was that he wanted to do. But um, anyway, Refn, there you go. Um, only God Forgives. Um it's just to me it's one of those movies as, as i'm watching it um just if there's people that just hate this fucking movie and shit all over it constantly and i love the the themes that run through it and that there it isn't all spoon-fed to you through dialogue um just a just a fucking that crazy family dynamic uh between the mother and uh, Ryan, uh, um, Kristen Scott Thomas's character and Ryan Gosling, uh, his brother, and also the father who never is in the movie, but you find out about. Um, and then the the family thing um, that runs through all the stories. Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas's character and Ryan Gosling's brother. Uh, her relationship with Ryan Gosling, uh, the police chief's relationship with his daughter, and how he views one thing that drives him 
you know, you can look at it like he's the angel of vengeance or he is God or he thinks of himself as God, maybe because he has all the power that he has being the chief of police. He can kill with impunity. He can judge people. Um, but also um, one of the reasons that runs through the movie is him being judge, jury and executioner or uh, the hand of the angry God versus the forgiving God uh, on how one thing that, that is so important to him is when you are a parent, um, you owe everything that you have to your child to make to protect them and to treat them well and to bring them up. And that's how he treats his daughter. Uh, then uh, in dealing with everybody that he deals with in the movie and the vengeance that he brings down on people that um, aren't fit as parents uh, and also how he reacts and treats um, the children and there was another um, example of that in the um, ambush scene where um, somebody is paid to um, try and take him out. And then they've uh, him and his um, uh, uh, policemen hunt down the people, the actual people that tried to kill him when they, you know, in the... Um, little diner scene where uh the the oozy and all that shit and uh, the the frying pan full of oil and i'm being cryptic because some of some people may not have and they're probably like oh my god what are you talking about but um those people and um when they catch up to them and there's a, a several interrogation scenes uh that are quite um brutal but also um I want. I don't want to say intimidating. He doesn't have to even um, um, use his own violence uh, against these people, but uh, when he does, it's you know, again, like the hand of the angry god. And, uh, you know, he's bringing down vengeance upon these, his vengeance upon these people and whether he's going to, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting how he handles some of them, uh, whereas some of them it's swift, uh, swift justice. And he feels that they don't even don't their punishment is they don't deserve life. They don't deserve to live. And that is quick and it's brutal and ruthless vengeance. Whereas some of the other people, he allows them to survive. But his judgment that he brings down on them is something that is um, it leaves them with something to a memory of what they did for the rest of their life. And they gave up something, uh, almost a, um, an old Testament, you know, uh, eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. And he really brings down the eye for an eye thing on, um, 
on uh, one person in the movie, um, you know, where <laughs> he's interrogating somebody and asking them questions. And uh, when they give him either bullshit or whatever, you know, he's like, you know, okay, if you're not going to use your senses um, to realize what's happening now and what you need to do, then um, I will take them away from you. Uh, one thing about that scene that was just so disturbing to me was um, when, uh, first of all, I, I really like how his two, um, like he's the chief of police and then his two uniform uh, like officers that walk around with him. I guess maybe one of them would be the captain and, um, you know, the other one, I don't know if he'd be like a lieutenant or whatever and how they act around him and how all the police do, even when he's singing karaoke, it's so it's, it's like so much respect. And not only that, but there's, you see the same respect, which Ryan Gosling just happens to see by happenstance and he is like, you know, almost like, what the fuck? When uh, they are in him and his brother's Thai uh, kickboxing gym, and when someone comes over to Ryan Gosling and is talking to him, out of the corner of his, of his eye, he sees um, all the young fighters in the gym just come around to uh, the chief of police, uh, Chang, and... They all come over and they, they bow to him. And he just stands there almost like a monolith. It's, it's, um, it really is like, you know, uh, if Odin or if uh, Jesus or something walked into a place and, you know, you're standing there and, and all these people other than you can know who this is and can see and walk over and they're just like, you know, in awe and pay kind of pay tribute or show respect to him. And so that was pretty cool. And, uh, but the one thing was um, when he was doing this one interrogation at this really beautiful nightclub and every, all the, all the girls are just dressed up and, you know, just beautifully dressed. And um, he goes through this interrogation, but before he starts um, his captain um, says, you know, just out of the blue, uh, you know, uh, you women or you girls, um, close your eyes and don't open them no matter what you hear. They don't move. They sit there, you know, uh, in their chairs and they all it's simultaneously all just close their eyes. And it's, it's, it's almost like, um, in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where, you know, Indy tells Miriam or whatever, he says, you know, close your eyes and don't open them up no matter what. Uh, like, if they do, they're going to fucking turn to stone. But I think what that was was also um, uh, because they were innocent, uh, he did not want them to be subjected to actually seeing this... Um, uh, and having to live with it now, to be honest with you, sitting there and just looking at them sitting there and the one girl that, that you just see this, her, her visibly wince 
from the sounds that she's hearing. So it's almost like a Hitchcock kind of a thing uh, where they may not see what's happening, but they can hear what's happening. And that in their imagination had to have been horrible and terrifying. Um, Another thing that I kind of put out of my mind, uh, I think when I watched this, I know I talked about this before where somebody offered up the theory that uh, um, my was um, uh, transgender because at the beginning of the film where Billy, who is Ryan Gosling's brother, goes to a uh, house of ill repute, they have like a room where all the um, the the prostitutes are on display almost like when you go to a deli and they have all the meat sitting behind the glass, you know, and you point out what you want. And he asks, uh, you know, are, are these all, are these all women? And the guy goes 50, 50. And, um, someone was saying, um, that in that, you know, it's it's a Thailand, I think it's Thailand, um, that there is a, a large, um, uh, population of um, transsexual uh, prostitutes. And so um, the one thing that um, this was just a theory, and I thought it was an interesting theory, uh, is that Ryan Gosling, uh, that uh, my could possibly have been a transgender person. And then that was... Um, almost kind of like a shameful thing that he had to deal with because um, though she was a prostitute from the way that the, the movie played it out was that he, she like, it would be like if you went to a prostitute, but like Julia Robertson, pretty woman or something. And the only one you went to, you could go to any of them. You could go to a different one every night or whatever, but you go to the same one. And so, and then his dreams and his fantasies and stuff involved her. So I had almost lost track of the fact that she was a prostitute and that he was paying her. Uh, and, um, and it, for me, it was almost kind of like I was thinking that they were a couple. And even though she had been a prostitute that, uh, she was kind of his girl or, you know, he was kind of his girl or whatever you want to find. But like I said, I don't even know if that was even in Refn's uh, mind or imagination or anything like that. I think it'd be interesting if it was. But then Kristen Scott Thomas, the mother, when she shows up, it was and how she confused her role as mother and totally fucked up his brain. I had definitely fucked up the brother, too, because some of the of the shit that he did in his limited role at the beginning of the movie. But um, what I was going to say was, I think Chang, if you look at him as like a spirit or uh, an all-knowing um, angel of vengeance or whatever, and uh, then his, his wrath was, it was destiny that his wrath was going to be brought down on um, Crystal, who was Julian's mother, because she had crossed the line. And as someone who was almost a protector of children and like the patron saint of, of, uh, 
of parents or something um, and a protector. Um, that was something that he uh, that could not go unpunished. Now, I mean, she was also a hardcore, you know, like female mafioso and everything. So uh, she was going to get hers in the end, no matter what, I think, just for their lifestyle. Because, um, And then also, because I had not seen this in a while, I forgot about um, the um, father dynamic. Uh, again, you don't see Julian and Billy's father through this movie. But um, another thing that Chang does not put up with and does not respect is somebody that uh, tries to save their own ass by throwing other people under the bus. And But what I was going to say about, about the father was um, Kirsten Scott Thomas makes um, mention of what had happened um, – to Billy and Julian's father and that in effect um, is why Julian and Billy were in his country and living there as expatriates and bringing their family business to um, that country. So there's a lot of stuff in there and, and like I said, I've seen this so many times and I don't know if it's just little things that you forget about or little things that maybe you didn't see or, uh, but it just continually, uh, is interesting to me. And, um, it's one of those movies, like I said, you're not spoon fed everything and you can go back and try and there's there's things that you can add yourself or read about the other other people's uh, ideas um and and not only that but this also is a pretty good action movie as far as number one it's got some very brutal uh violence and uh, special effects as far as violence goes and um i kind of dig i don't know if i would call it a martial arts movie but it i you could definitely see where this movie could have been made um as a kind of a martial arts movie a yakuza kind of a movie um so but it's it is it's very interesting and again uh, um i almost there was a couple times that i still am probably going to do it um uh where to to get uh find and i've already found them i just need to figure out which one i want and get a uh, framed uh movie poster of uh this movie i like it so much i would love to have uh a, an actual frame poster of only god forgives to uh, put up on my wall because i like the movie so much i really like drive uh but it's not i have not watched it anywhere near as much as this one and I don't, um, it doesn't visually um, stimulate me as much as Only God Forgives. And moving on from that, let's go over to 2018's The Brawler. Now this was on uh, Netflix for free to download. And... Um, I like uh, the actor Zach McGowan. Uh, the first thing I saw him in was Black Sails. And in that, he played 
I believe the guy was a real-life pirate. Uh, where is that? I want to see what his name was. Because I have a book about pirates. And then when I watched Black Sails, I was uh, Captain Charles Vane. Uh, I was so into this series. Uh, and I really recommend it. Uh, at least the first couple of seasons because the last season I was like, oh, I can't wait for the last season and everything. And then I don't think I've ever even finished it. It's almost like um, um, that last uh, True Detective. I still haven't finished that. I watched like the first three or four episodes and I was like, Man, I don't give a fuck if I ever finish this. Um, but he was really good in that and uh, the whole pirate um, um, lifestyle and the way they did the the TV show where you're mixing fictional characters from pirate tales and movies and books and everything, Long John Silver and stuff like that, with real-life uh, uh, pirates. Because then after I watched it, I went and I was looking up some of these people, and yeah, there was a whole bunch of them that were, were, were the real people. But then there were some of them that were in it, and I was like looking them up, and I was like, well, hell, that's... Uh, you know, uh, like I said, Long John Silver or this person or that person, which was a fictional character. Um, but Zach um, McGowan, um, I liked him in that. And then I saw him in um, the last Death Race uh, remake. And I thought he was pretty good in that. that was, those have all been pretty good. Um, but this movie, The Brawler from 2018, it was directed by Ken Kushner. And written by um, Ken Kushner and Robert DeBella. I wanted to look something up here real quick. Because um, there's another movie that you can compare this to. And uh, rightfully so. Because it's like the exact same fucking movie. Uh, and that movie is The Bleeder. Or it was retitled as Chuck with Lieb Shriver as um, um, Chuck, the boxer Chuck Wepner, who um, was kind of a, it, it was the guy that Sylvester Stallone based the character of Rocky Balboa on, who was like a down and out kind of club fighter that Muhammad Ali, uh, he, he wanted to fight and he wanted to come up with a gimmick to fight somebody who wasn't a threat, but that they could draw a crowd and kind of drum up some, some uh, publicity and so kind of like Apollo Creed did with Rocky Balboa and he did and um, he picked Chuck Wepner who was known as the Bayonne Bleeder and uh, he bled a lot so that's good it's almost like a professional wrestling thing when people see blood they love it uh, he really wasn't any kind of a threat to Muhammad Ali because Ali was such so much outclassed him so much and um then he went on to uh, have a worked uh, wrestling match with Andre the Giant. He fought fucking a, a, a goddamn bear uh, in like a professional wrestling match. They used to have where, you know, if you, you got in the ring and, you know, would fight this bear. And the bear usually would just kind of move around with you uh, with, the, with the wrestlers. But sometimes it went awry uh, where uh, Louis Martinez, they, they had a... Uh, Either they would have the all the bear's teeth pulled and it declawed, or in this case they had the um, bear had a muzzle on, and uh, Louis Martinez was wrestling around wrestling the bear in a, in a wrestling match, and his finger went inside, 
the um, the muzzle and the bear bit his f- fucking finger off. And uh, Don Fargo said you could, you know, he was like, oh, my God, you know, because he, he was in shock because he got his finger bit off. And he looked over and the bear was just over there going, <laughs> eating his fucking finger. So anyway, um, Chuck or the Bleeder was made in 2016. Well, the Brawler was made in uh, two years later. And it's the exact same story. Um, it's way more of a low, uh, it's a, you know, a lower budget. Um, Amy Smart is in it. And there was, I'm trying to think there was a few other people, uh, Joseph D'Onofrio. So I guess he must be maybe related to Vincent D'Onofrio, Burt Young. Um, but it's, it's definitely a low budget movie. Whereas the one with Leah Shriver, um, was a more mainstream, mainstream, a movie that was, I think, actually in the theaters. This one was definitely straight to download, straight to streaming. And uh, but it's not bad. It really is not bad. Um, you you just kind of have to susp- uh, watch it and kind of get into it. As far as how you know McGowan really doesn't look like Chuck Webner, whereas Leah Shriver, the way they had him with the receding hairline and the comb over and. The way he moved, the way he acted and everything was way, you know, more like Chuck Webner. And this is definitely um, the lesser of the two films. But I did not not like it or not enjoy it. Uh, If you go into it knowing that and knowing it's a low budget kind of straight to DVD type movie, the story's still good. And all the shit that he went through and, you know, everything with... uh, uh, you know, just kind of kind of one of those guys that was kind of in the uh, uh, born to lose, couldn't get out of his own way type of a thing. Um, so it's it's worth checking out. Like I said, it's free, so you can't fucking lose as far as that goes. Um, next thing I watched was a documentary called Who the Fuck is Jackson Pollock from 2006. And um, basically, uh, this is another one that was on, um, I think, on Netflix for free. I had seen it before a long time ago. Uh, I was always interested in Jackson Pollock after seeing the Ed Harris uh, movie with Marcia Gay Harden, um, um, uh, Pollock, uh, which I love that movie. I, I would like to watch that again soon. I have it on VHS, so you know maybe I'll break it out one of these days and run the head cleaner through the VCR and watch it. Uh, but this is... Um, an interesting story is directed and written by Henry Morgan Moses and uh, it stars Terry Horton and of course the documentary. So these are all real people. Uh, but um, basically the storyline is that this woman, she's an old lady and she's a truck driver, like an over the road truck driver driving a semi. And um, she's kind of one of these people that would dumpster dive and also, you know, go to thrift stores, flea markets, um, you know, like I said, dumpster actually dumpster dive at, at um, grocery stores and in um, department stores and find clothes, you know, and and things like that. And she wanted to get her friend a almost a joke um, gift. Um, and she went to a woman was having a yard sale and she bought this looked like a big piece of you know canvas with paint all over it. Um, to uh, give to her friend and she paid like $5. I think she actually did. She paid $5 for it. And then um, it ended up there. The whole 
documentary revolves around whether this is an actual Jackson Pollock painting. Um, and you have that, and then it goes into um, the art speculation market. And some of these people that the, the the people that they go to to say, hey, is this a Monet? Is this a uh, you know Renoir or whatever? Um, and these people are supposed to be you know the the creme de la creme of the uh, of of the uh, art, you know art critics and um, um, people that that are supposed to know their shit. And I watched another documentary one time where um, about um, art forgery, which is a big business, and that's one of the the main themes of um, uh, the American Friend with Dennis Hopper and Bruno Gans is Tom Ripley um, is running this scam where he is getting these forged uh, masterpieces and selling them. Um, he has uh, uh, a guy that can pretty much uh, copy anybody, and he would make these paintings. and um, And in the one documentary that I watched, there, there, it was, it was almost like an. Uh, well, here's another one: uh, the the uh, sports memorabilia forgery thing, where they would take baseballs and and age them through different processes of dipping them in different things to make them look like something that, you know, like Babe Ruth, uh, you know, had back in like 19 fucking the twenties or whatever. Um, and all these things that they go through and, and guys that would sit there and practice signatures over and over and over so they could just write them and then get online and sell these things as, okay, this is a Pete Rose baseball or this is a Jersey and everything. And it's the same thing with this because these people that <coughs> are the art critics and the uh, assessors that are supposed to be so knowledgeable comes up with something, they're going to be like, well, obviously this isn't uh, a Jackson Pollock mentor. And it would be a good companion piece for, um, again, um, something to see them or one of them in. And it says all genre. Uh, secrets, but it was there was another one. Let's see, I've got I have it written down here. Uh, Spidebound, and um, this was directed by Fred, Frederic uh, Schandorfer and uh, was written by Yann Brion and Jean Cosmos. Stars Vincent Casal, Monica Balucci, André de Solier. <laughs> see if there's anybody else on your racket. Fucking Bucha. Uh, Najwa Nemiri and Gabriel Lazur. Sir Javandicania. Eric Savin. Uh, Sergio Paris. Uh, Mesharata. <laughs> anyway, so um, this wasn't bad. I had never heard of it. It's from 2004. Um, it is a spy movie that would whew, kind of be, I was going to say it would kind of be, uh, it's not quite as dry as, say, a 
Jean Lacare um, movie like Tinker Tailor or um, Spy Who Came In From The Cold or something like that. This does have action. It does have fighting and things like that in it. Uh, and you do have, uh, you know, Vincent Casal is uh, a member of a special forces team that uh, is going and doing this stuff. There's a lot of backstabbing, a lot of... Uh, cutthroat shit the stiletto in the in the back and you know who can you trust and uh monica bellucci is a spy and um you know the one thing i was thinking about this is um is like paul newman and joanne woodward and everything and i know that casal and bellucci split up is that you know when a couple has been together for so long and then they split up, even though I don't even know these fucking people and everything, uh, you know, they had been together as husband and wife for quite, for quite a long time. And so when I had heard a few years back that they split up, it was kind of like, Oh man, that sucks. Uh, but she did say, she said, you know, Vincent Casal is Vincent Casal. And I think what the way that I interpreted that was he was a man of, uh, uh, number one that he was like kind of like this uh sex symbol and and the kind of he's a man's man and um a man with large appetites and if you're going to be married to him you know that and so anyway and then i guess after a while it's just kind of like okay let's just fucking you know i still probably she probably still cares about him he probably still cares about her but uh you know just uh, it's time to Time to time to go our separate ways. But anyway, I thought this was pretty good and it did not. Uh, the one thing I liked about it was that it did not um, um, go down the standard route on um, a few things where if it was cookie cutter, it would go, you know, bam, bam, bam. But it, it, it uh, there were things that happened that you suspect. um should have went one way, but they don't. Uh, there was one scene in this where I was like, okay, now give me a fucking break. It was one of those, one of those, uh, you see something happening. It was, it, it was almost like a, um, fast and the furious, um, kind of a person surviving, um, something that you're like okay now give me a fucking break but anyway i thought it was pretty good and monica bellucci is so good looking in this she like as far as uh, like the you know uh the sex symbol thing and everything they totally downplay that uh but you do get to see her boobies <laughs> that one is on itunes so you want to look at that uh again another uh rewatch which was um a um great documentary this is the way document when i when i was talking about how um you know uh, only god forgives how it was shot uh, this movie is kind of a um, kindred spirit to that because it is an interesting movie but uh the cinematography uh is a fucking 10 it's a fucking 11 uh and that's hero dreams of sushi from 2011 uh, the documentary of an 85 of uh, 85 year old sushi master Iro Ono, uh, his renowned Tokyo restaurant and his relationship with his son. Well, actually, two sons, and uh, or the the one uh, is uh, Yoshikusa, and that son is is it is the main thrust of the movie is uh, he is 
oh, he's 85 years old and he is like a Zen master of fucking sushi and a workaholic and a perfectionist uh, extraordinaire and, and known for that. And his son, um, his one son worked under him learning the craft and everything and then uh, went out on his own and opened his own sushi restaurant. Whereas the other son, who is uh, Yoshikuza, uh, still works for the old man. Uh, and by staying there, he's still under his eye. He's still in his shadow. Uh, again, when I said Babe Ruth earlier, the baseball player, it would be like this, you know, if you were the son of Babe Ruth, you know, or, uh, you know, whoever, somebody that was a. Uh, you know, a great, uh, superior, a great, and a legend in their field, and you're in their shadow. Uh, now, the 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 son uh, Yoshikuza uh, definitely it would it was hard it would be hard to live up to uh, Hiro Ono's um, his his mastery of his profession. But um, it's also about how, well, not uh, to talk about his um, childhood and how he became who he was and how people perceive him. Like people would get, will, will, uh, not, it's 2011, he was 85 then, so he might not even be alive anymore, I'm not sure. Um, but um, People actually being intimidated that came into his restaurant to eat uh, in front of him. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of how he is. I want to look up and see um, if he's still alive while, while we're on here. Why not? We'll learn something. I mean, that's what we're here for, I guess. And to hear me farting and acting stupid and singing and blah, blah, blah. You so square, maybe I don't care. La 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 la. Maybe I don't care. <laughs> because don't cry. <laughs> I I have a bottle of uh. Let's see what this is here. I bought something online the other day, and it's called uh, liquid ass. And this is a uh, butt crack smell uh for fart pranks and it's a tiny little bottle uh pull a stinky prank on your friends right under their noses so i haven't used it yet and i haven't smelled it i enjoy watching uh videos of um people pulling this prank it's like say they're in a car with a friend or a relative or something like that and they uh undercover uh without the person's knowledge spray this fart spray and then um you know try and keep a straight face and uh <laughs> well the other person reacts so i haven't opened it yet i'm sure i sure as hell don't want to um you know spray it in my own fucking house and so i and, and you you know you want to see somebody's reaction of course you could spray it in a room and then walk away and but you'll never see um you know what what what's going on there so i bought the bottle and i have it and um we'll just have to keep you up to date on um on how things go i'm definitely not going to do it work because i don't want to get fired um uh. hiro ono uh the um 
star of Hero Dreams of Sushi, is 93 years old. He's still fucking alive. So there you go. That's pretty cool. Um, let's see what his son, if his son is, uh, he has two sons, Yoshi, uh, Kazu Ono. And let's see what he's doing. He works at Sukiyabashi, uh, Iro's, uh, restaurant in uh, Ginzo, Chuo, Tokyo. The restaurant is restaurant is owned by his father. Okay, so he's still working there under his father. Okay, well, I just wanted to, you know, find out uh, uh, what had been going on. I know I found out about this movie through, uh, you know, Will and Sammy at uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. And uh, sought it out and really enjoyed it. And I still like watching it. I mean, fuck if I mean, again, when you take a documentary, a, a really good documentary makes something interesting. So, uh, it makes interesting. Uh, like I knew all I know about sushi is, is that if it's done well, I'd like to eat it. But I would never have thought if somebody would have told me, hey, they made this movie about a guy who makes sushi. And it's really fucking good. And it is. I mean, it's a documentary. I'm not saying, you know, it's a dramatic movie. But the way it's done, the music that plays throughout the movie, the way it's shot, uh, there are slow motion scenes. uh, And it's just interesting. And it's an interesting character study. So I thought that was pretty good. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if it would be a place. I would eat there just because of the movie. Uh, but it would not be, um, I don't know how to say it. Like at at most restaurants, say you're sitting in a booth, you're sitting at a table, waitress or waiter or waitress comes out and, uh, takes your order, brings it out to you and sit there and eat while you're talking to somebody else. This place, you are sitting at a counter and he is preparing this shit right in front of you as are the uh you know the other people that that are working there and you are eating under his watchful and eye and you know under his i don't know how if he would be scrutinizing you but i think the way it was almost like that you would feel like he was uh and they said like a meal in that place would be like 15 minutes you eat fast he he will prepare the sushi set out uh the different pieces one at a time and you they don't have appetizers or anything like that you take your chopsticks you put the one piece of sushi in your mouth you eat the whole fucking thing then he prepares another one sits in front of you depending on how much you order i guess and um they were showing some of the other places in um japan and you know tokyo and in, in japan that have and i saw this in um the series legion uh, where they have almost like a little conveyor belt or a little um, um, water-like stream that you sit at, and the dishes all go around on these little boats or on plates on a conveyor belt, round conveyor belt, and you just take the one you want as they go by. And again, another thing that I watched was uh, that I watch is some of these eating challenges and things like that on YouTube. And one of the guys went to a place and uh, the challenge was to eat so much of this 
sushi and stuff like that, and he has to pay for it. So as it went around, they had like little colorful uh, dots or numbers or something on each dish, which would tell how much each one cost. So to keep the cost down, he would he was waiting for the lesser price stuff to come around because I guess some of it can be expensive. But a place that has um, something like that, I don't think that Hero would even consider working in a place like that. He would probably think of that as like McDonald's or something. Okay, so let's move on. Um, something that I saw that I thought looked really interesting, and I haven't seen it yet, I just saw the trailer, is uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, from uh, It's going to be coming out in 2019. Um, that was directed by uh, James Mangold and written by Jez, J-E-Z, uh, Butterworth and John Henry Butterworth. And it stars Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Let's see who else is in this besides them. Josh Lucas, I know who he is. Catriona uh, Balfe. John Bernthal, who plays Punisher and has been in several movies that we all have seen. Uh, this is a movie about cars, and when I first saw the title, I thought, okay, what kind of, you know, fucking movie is this? It's called Ford versus Ferrari. And then when I saw the trailer, um, Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby, um, who is a very famous, you know, car maker and, you know, came out with like a Mustang Cobra and all this and that, uh, and, but from the trailer okay the synopsis is american car designer carol shelby and driver ken miles that's uh, matt damon and uh christian bale plays ken miles battle corporate interference the laws of physics and their impersonal demons to build a revolutionary race car for ford uh, to challenge uh ferrari at the 24 hours of le mans in 1966 so this would be a good companion piece for the steve mcqueen movie le mans and um, who plays Lee Iacocca is John Bernthal. Plays Lee Iacocca. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know who he played. Uh, and Tracy Letts plays Henry Ford II. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a uh, go-to guy for me. Uh, he hasn't let me down too many times uh, other than that kind of Terminator movie, which I just watched recently on um, TV, and I did not think it was very good. Uh, but that wasn't his fault. It was just kind of kind of a turd. But we'll be talking about Mr. Bale here again in, in just a few minutes. Probably. Mm-hmm. This might be a short show. I say that all the time, but it might be. I didn't watch that much. And, um, you know, don't need a three-hour deal every time, do we? I watched 2018's The Mule, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, I kind of let this one come and go at the theater. Um, I don't know why. I just didn't think it looked like it was would be something that I just need, you know, was clamoring to see. Um, but I'll be honest with you. Now, I, it wasn't like the greatest goddamn fucking movie I ever saw, but I thought it was pretty entertaining uh, because it went a little bit of a different way than um, I thought it was going to. Uh, it had some pretty humorous moments in it, but it also had some... Uh, um, you know, kind of tense uh, shit in it, too. It's about uh, an old dude 
Uh, he's kind of at the end of his life, 90 years old and everything, a, a, a war veteran. And he's a horticulturalist. And just by circumstance, he happens to get involved in, um, well, the movie's called The Mule, uh, transporting um, illegal narcotics for a Mexican drug cartel. And I guess they would get some of these people, you know, older people and things like that, that, that didn't have any kind of traffic tickets or anything like that. And they would um, use them and pay them really well uh, because they knew the cops would never pull them over, never suspect them or anything. And and um, just that alone, I knew that's what the it's it's a true based on true story. Um, but I knew that's what it was about when, you know, it came out and was in the theater and Clint's usually pretty good. He's only let me down. Like the only time I can think of as far as directing goes other, well, until last night with Jersey boys. And again, I haven't finished it. So maybe it's going to be really good was that fucking baseball movie. And that was another one. I'd never even, I, I hate to say it and I'm not going to judge it because again, I had not seen the whole thing uh, that's another one i stopped watching because i just didn't i was like man this isn't very good and i just don't want to fucking watch it anymore of it um the uh what was that one called da, da, da. not invictus invictus was just okay i didn't think that one was that great either um that was the um rugby movie with matt damon matt damon usually is pretty good but that one wasn't taken. What's this? The Ballad of Richard Jewell. American security guard Richard Jewell heroically saves thousands of lives from an exploding bomb at the 1996 Olympics, but is unjustly vilified by journalists and the press who falsely report that he was the terrorist. And that is a rumored Clint Eastwood movie that's going to be coming up. Clint's pretty fucking old, man. If he's going to be, I thought he actually retired from making movies. Maybe Clint didn't direct that baseball movie. This is was it Slow Curve? I haven't. It's not on here. That's just the first thing that comes to mind. Let me look at actor. Uh, I think that's what it was. Maybe Blood Work, Million Dollar Baby, Gran Torino, Trouble with the Curve. Okay, he played Gus. Who directed that fucking turd? I didn't think that was very good at all. I, I don't know if Loaf liked that one or not. He's a big baseball movie and baseball fan. I'll have to get together. Hey, Loaf, did you like that movie? Yes. <laughs> Son of a bitch, why don't you say something? Shut up. Okay, that was Loaf making his appearance. I'm going to get a sock puppet. <laughs> okay. So anyway, Clint has made some movies that were not that great, but The Mule was pretty good. It was fairly entertaining, and it's also one that you could probably take watch with your mom and dad. Uh, I still haven't seen American Sniper. Trouble with the Curve again, yeah, uh, and I haven't finished it. So you know, maybe I should go back and watch the whole thing. Uh, Grand Torino was pretty good. Racist Clint um, protecting. You know, he's like it's like uh, Harry Callahan. You know, protecting the. Uh, Korean neighbors. Million Dollar Baby was pretty good from what I remember. Uh, Blood Work, I didn't think that was very good. Space Cowboys was, you know, kind of one of those buddy movies. Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, and James Garner and Clint, and they show their asses, their old man saggy asses. I don't know. James Garner had a big butt. Uh, he even says that in his biography. He always had a big butt. I can't remember if he had a big butt or not. They were also saggy. 
Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is probably wasn't as saggy because I don't think he's as old as Clinton. Then let's see how old Tommy Tommy Lee Jones. He's pretty old, and he was around. He did the Betsy, and uh, he's seventy-two. Clint's like ninety. How old is Donald? Donald Sutherland's eighty-three. So Tommy Lee Jones had to have been the youngest. Yeah, he was the young pup of that bunch. Because um, Garner's 86. Clit is, what, like 90-something? Is he older than Garner? That's weird. Boot Hill, Boot Hill, so cold, so still. Why don't they say saved our holiday? The gunfight at OK Corral. Clint is 89. So him and Garner are closer to the same age. Sutherland there is a, a young pup compared to them. But uh, yeah, Tommy Lee with his big old jug ears. Man, he's got some big old fucking ears on him. Big bags under his eyes, too. Okay, let's see. What else we got here? True crime? What was true crime? Clint. Lisa Gay Hamilton. Over the Hill journalist uncover the... Uh, can an over the Hill journalist uncover the evidence that can prove the death row inmate's innocence just hours before his execution? if I've seen that one or not. How the fuck did I miss that? It's got James Woods in it. He's a good actor, but he's a fucking lousy human. Uh, Dennis Leary. Lisa Gay Hamilton. I know her. What else is she in? Michael McKeon. He was in Spinal Tap, and he was Lenny from Lenny and Squiggy. So I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I'm, I bet you, I don't know. I didn't even ring a bell. I mean, the name of it does, but maybe I just let it pass by. Now my computer's going to lock up on me. I'm not going to be able to do shit. Motherfucker. <sighs> might be, it might be a really short show. I ain't rebooting this motherfucking son of a bitch. Why are you doing this to me? You motherfucker. I got the list written down here, but it's nice to have IMDb. The Mule, Ferrari, Hero Dreams of Sushi. Oh, shit, man. I got a ways to go here. Why is it doing this, people? Tell me. Okay. Let's go back. It won't. It won't. Uh, this computer's probably about ready to go kaput. No wonder they sent me a thing that said they weren't going to fucking uh offer updates after a certain time because this is fucking old go back stop i gotta know right now before we go any further do you love me well you son of a bitch okay let me get imdb back up hopefully it'll do one of those things where it says it closed uh in a bad way and bring everything up i had up before or we're gonna have to fucking put everything in like the movie Desiris. <laughs> oh, you bastard. Okay, let's see. What? Well, I wonder why it did that. I don't know. Why am I asking you? You don't know nothing. <laughs> oh, IMDB. Man, that's bullshit. 
Okay, Desiris or Desire from 2017. And this was a French, um, I believe. Was it French or was it Italian? Desiris al hombre de tu uh, hermana is the uh, official original title. Uh, Lucia and Ophelia. Two sisters finally meet after seven years at Lucia's wedding. But when Juan, Lucia's husband, and Ophelia meet, they feel like a disruptive fantasy. Uh, uh, they feel like a disruptive fantasy have enchanted their minds and bodies. Okay, this was directed by Diego Kaplan, written by Erica Alvorsen, and it stars Carolina Ordihan, uh, Monica Antonopolosa, uh, and Juan Sorini. Hiccup. This takes place, at, I think it's like back in the, maybe the 60s or early 70s. And um, again, basically, I think Rolf even asked me when he saw the movie poster for it if it was a porn, because it looks like somebody having a foursome or doing some swinging on the front of it. It was on Netflix for free. It's uh, only an hour and a half long, and it's pretty good. Um, Two sisters and their mother is a real free spirit who brings them up and teaches them about sex. To give you an idea, like the mother flirts with all their boyfriends grabs their asses she's a milf and she tells them you know don't say penis say cock because cock sounds so much more sexy don't say uh vagina say vulva because it sound it rolls off your tongue and it sounds sensuous and everything so anyway the two sisters are they're of similar age, but growing up, the one became pretty wild as far as sex goes, and the other one was more, um, I don't know if I would say reserved, but things just didn't go her way as far as like, you know, the first time and things like that, where everything came easy to the other one. They're both good looking. Um, but, you know, the one girl, when she has her first experience, it's like, you know, oh my God, and she does like, you know, everything well and the other one's kind of clumsy and klutzy and doesn't know what to do um it has some comical moments in it because the one sister oh it's she's real resentful of the other one and so they hadn't seen each other for a long time but she comes to the one sister's wedding and uh the one that's getting married's husband had heard all about her and his soon-to-be wife or his wife or whatever, she has this reel-to-reel um, audio tapes that the other sister had made. And um, she would just talk into the recorder about lots of things, but a lot of her sexual exploits and, you know, different things. Well, the husband would put on these um, big, you know, it would be like almost like the... Um, sound canceling headphones the big cans you know that they had back then and he would be in the bathroom listening to these tapes because when she came to visit you know they have us they're like in on the mediterranean or wherever i don't care where the fuck they're at 
but I mean, they have this really nice house and it's on the beach. And so, and they have a big swimming pool and everything. So they're all in bikinis. And so he sees the sister and he knows how wild she is and, and how sexy she is. So he's looking at her and he's getting all turned on. And then he would go in the bathroom and put these fucking headphones on and listen to her talk about her sexual exploits and be sitting there beating off. So it was kind of fun. That was kind of funny, but it's, it's, uh, it's got some sad stuff in it and, but it's, it's definitely entertaining. It's called desire or, uh, desiras. It's got some sex in it. <laughs> Not as much as I thought it would, but it's a sexy movie. Um, next thing. Oh, I forgot my goddamn fucking IMDb. I have to put everything in one at a time now. I watched uh, Elvis and Nixon, which um, stars Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey. Uh, Michael Shannon plays Elvis Presley, and uh, Kevin Spacey plays Richard Nixon, Richard Milhouse Nixon, the President of the United States. I am not a crook. Um, the casting, Kevin Spacey was excellent. At, the casting was good. Kevin Spacey was excellent as Richard Nixon, Michael Shannon was excellent as Elvis Presley, but Michael Shannon is not a good-looking guy. Um, so you have to suspend disbelief as far... Because Elvis was fucking good. I'm a guy, and I'm not gay. But Elvis was a fucking good-looking guy. And as... Uh, <laughs> what Was it in uh, Bubba Hotep where he said he'd hit a girl with his... <laughs> With that curly, curly lip smile, and he'd have meat out of his asshole. Oh, <laughs> but anyway, the I lost my train of thought. That was weird. I guess it just came out of me. Um, that was the angry angel of vengeance. Uh, <laughs> okay, this was a fucking funny ass movie, and and I watched it even though Michael Shannon. Again, he's kind of, I, I like the guy. I'm not trying to say anything bad about him, but he's kind of ugly. And they dress him up like Elvis, and he acts like Elvis. And by the time the movie's over, it's almost like Bruce Campbell in fucking Boba Hotep. By the time the movie's over, you kind of, you put it out of your head. Now, I know if my mom watched this, the first thing she would say was, that guy doesn't look anything like Elvis. He's ugly. But, um, when you get into it and you forget about that and you just go with the flow, it's fucking funny. I watched it for the first time the other night. And then the next night I watched it again before, uh, it expired and went away. Um, Johnny Knoxville plays Sonny West, which was one of the Memphis mafia. He, that Sonny West was red West brother and red West was in roadhouse. He played Micklin on Baba black sheep he was, what else was he in? Red West. Um, he was in some other shit, too. He was Elvis's best friend from high school. And then he and Sonny became Elvis's um, uh, bodyguards. And so Johnny Knoxville plays him. What else was he? I thought he was in, okay, he was in Roadhouse, of course. He was in Rainmaker. With DeVito and Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Stunts. He did stunts. Uh, what else we got? Probably a lot of TV. Because like I said, he was like on Baba Black Sheep, which was a TV show with Robert Conrad. Uh, let's go back, way back. 
He's probably in a shitload of old Elvis movies, too. Walking Tall Part 2. Yeah, I remember that with uh, Bo Svensson. He played the sheriff in that. He was in Framed, uh, the Joe Don Baker uh, movie. He was in, uh, oh, he played Sheriff Tanner in the original Walking Tall with Joe Don, Joe Don Baker, and then he played Sheriff Tanner in uh, the re, the uh, sequel with Bo Svensson when Joe Don didn't do Buford Pusser again. Of course, like I said, he's in all the old Elvis movies. He was on Bonanza. Um, Elvis got him a lot of fucking work, I'm sure, on TV and stuff. Blue Hawaii, um, Maverick with James Garner. Uh, Kid Galahad, that was Elvis and uh, uh, Charles Bronson, where Elvis was a boxer. Girls, girls, girls. Uh, la, la, la. Was he in uh, Clambake? Uh, Fun in Acapulco. All these are Elvis movies. Uh, Roustabout, that's an Elvis movie, of course. Harem Scarum, of course, these are all are. Paradise Hawaiian style spin out, that's Elvis. Elvis made a lot of movies. Uh, Clambake, yeah, gonna have Clambake. Hey, mama, little baby, love clambake, clambake. Mama, little baby, love clambake too. Mama, little baby, love clambake, clambake. Mama, little baby, love clambake too. Hey, uh, <laughs> six million dollar man. Uh, Wild Wild West, Concrete Cowboys. Now I'm just reading shit off of IMDb into your ear. Magnum PI, Fall Guy. That was Lee Majors. A Team. But I thought he was in. Okay, let me get up here. Where Roadhouse? Natural Born Killers, Cowboy Sheriff. Um, I'm gonna sneeze. So get ready. Above suspicion. <laughs> Shit, partner. Uh, he was the guy that owned the hardware store in um, Roadhouse. That Brad Wesley went in and fucking fucked with. Anyway, let's get off Red West. It's funny if you ever see uh, videos of Elvis doing um, karate, uh, like uh, demonstrations and shit like that. It's usually Red West is the other dude. Um, but this this movie is funny. I fucking recommend it. it, it I'm a big Elvis fan for all the warts and for the better or the worse, and uh, like just liking the the crazy shit and the. Uh, I like all the old stuff, like back in uh, when he did, um, you know, King Creole and uh, the good, some of the good movies when he was really young. And then I even like the um, the uh, Las Vegas shit with the white with the capes and the white leather jumpsuits and all that stuff. And you know, like the, the Bubba Hotep kind of stuff when he when he would do the karate and all that. Um, so I recommend that one. I watched a documentary. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it's called The Power of Grayskull. And, um, shit. Of course, I'll never get that motherfucker. There it is. Power of Grayskull, The Definitive History of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This was on Netflix for free, I believe. Or was it on iTunes? I can't remember. But um, I thought this was pretty good. I Now, to be... I never watched He-Man. I still don't think I have seen the He-Man movie with Dolph. I think we were going to review it one time and it was not very good. Or maybe we did and I did see it and it wasn't very good. I can't remember. I don't think I have. Um, but I never watched the cartoon. I never had the toys or anything. It's kind of like my friend Jim. He um, 
he was into like He-Man and then like Transformers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and shit. And that was just like a little before my time or I mean a little after my time and I never watched any of that. So I didn't know anything about it other than Dolph was in the movie. I mean, I had an idea of the toys and, you know, it was pretty kind of self-explanatory and, you know, you just pick up shit about like She-Ra and all this stuff. But this, this is a, a definitive uh, documentary about He-Man, how it came about with the inspiration of like Conan the Barbarian with Arnold uh, and about the toys, how they made toys, the competition between, you know, like Mattel and um, I don't know if this Hasbro or I can't remember who the other company is now um but uh the way that they made the toys uh how they made good toys how so many people made shitty toys how the movie came about they interview uh Dolph and Franklin Jella and Franklin Jella uh somebody else said on the group that the movie was worth uh, the documentary was worth watching just to see Franklin Jella's commentary on the movie and I thought it, it really was good he was really good and he didn't like talk down about the movie he said i think i think he was saying like it was uh like he did it for his son or it was his out of all the stuff he did uh it was his son's favorite movie of all the stuff that he did so it had a special place in his heart and he he really you know it would been it would have been easy and dolph didn't do this either it would have been easy for both of them to come on and make fun of the fucking movie and talk shit on it and everything neither one of them did and they actually you know uh had good things to say i mean you, you got a lot of good behind the scenes things about it. And then you also had a lot of stuff, like I said, about the toys, the making of the toys, the inspiration and how they would do this and that and, and the marketing and selling, but also comic books and the drawings and the cartoons, how they actually did the cartoons at the time. And then the resurgence where I think uh, the Japanese company started doing the cartoons, which gave it like an anime feel and look and everything. It was really interesting. And again, you don't have to know anything about any of this shit um, to uh, enjoy this. I thought it was pretty good. I, I'm glad I watched it. Like I said, I did not know anything about any of that stuff. So it, it was an education. Now the next thing I watched is I have to type it in here. Um, I watched Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla because the new Godzilla movie's coming out. Um, I was telling my friend the other day that, you know, it seems like there's been nothing in, in the theater. And then, of course, within like a week, all of a sudden there's like four movies. The Elton John movie, Rocket Man, the new Godzilla movie, um, Bright Burn. I want to get catch that before it leaves the theater. And there was another one that just came out that I wanted, that I was thinking about going to see. So there's like four movies. And I had yesterday off and I could have went and I fucking just laid around and went to sleep and kind of slept off and on all day and my back. I think I, I, I really think, I don't think it's my back. I think that I either pulled or tore some cartilage in a rib or maybe even tore a muscle or something in my back or something like that because um, you know, I can get up and function, uh, and go to work and stuff like that. Once I'm on my feet and I'm up and moving around, I feel good when I lay down. Like if I go to sleep and I sleep for several hours, whether it's four hours, six hours, eight hours or whatever, when I get up, man, last night I thought, man, it's been feeling pretty good. I can tell there's still something wrong and it's been, God damn, it's been like three or four weeks and I got up and it, it had me walking sideways and hunched over like an old man and everything. And then it finally kind of, 
aligns itself and gets me standing up. So I don't know what it is, you know. Uh, it's something that had happened before. But the last time I thought it was just uh, some disc out in my lower back. And it just takes time for it to go back in. This, it feels like, again, and this, I said the same thing last time, it feels like there's something in my ribs on my back that's that's messed up. And when I went to the doctor last time and they x-rayed me all these different ways and everything, he said there was a medical term for it where you get like um, people can get like a, the cartilage in their ribs gets um, messed up or um, if it's torn or, or like your rib can get out of out of place or something like that. And there's a technical term for it. And that's what he said he thought it was. So then I was doing it, it got better and I was having any kind of problems and then I was doing push ups and stuff and, and um it's something went wrong. <laughs> okay, but the next thing, uh, like I said, I watched um um Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla. I actually bought that on iTunes. I figured, you know, that since the new Godzilla movie was coming out, they had all um all these Godzilla movies on there and they're fairly, the old ones are fairly cheap and that's not like a real old one. That was like a, wasn't that one like 2002 or something? It was one of the newer ones. Sorry, I have to type. I had all this prepared as you know, from listening to the show, uh, but um, then that thing kind of messed up on me. 2002. Yeah. Um, again, this is one of my favorites. Um, it is one of the newer ones and the way that they use the, um, you know, the practical effects and everything, but it, it, it looks, they look way better than the the ones from like the seventies and stuff, but there's, I'd like them all. They're all very entertaining. I wanted to watch, uh, I was listening to uh paleo cinema and Terry and, uh, Sally went to Japan and, uh, I really encourage everybody, number one, to listen to his podcast really good. And watch his YouTube channel because the videos that he's putting out, they're not real long. Say it's like maybe like 10 minutes, if if that, about a certain subject. Like who would have made, uh, uh, who, what actors would have made good James Bonds, um, different movies and things like that. But um, the, the uh, podcast that he did about when they went to Japan was really interesting. And it's kind of fun because I've never been there. And, you know, you get to hear about all this stuff. Um, and they went to the Toho Studios and things. But he recommends Shin Godzilla. And I got it. And I wanted to watch it that night. And uh, the fucking thing didn't download uh, correctly from iTunes. Because it's on my iPad. But when I click on it, it says, you know, it can't play it or whatever. So I'm going to have to um, uh, re-download it on there. So I watch Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla, and I really enjoy it. I like the Sub Zero and the Mazers and all the weapons and stuff. And I like I like how they had the um, I don't know if the pseudo science, but I mean they they really go with and stick to and uh, the, you know their kind of comic book sort of science, uh, their science fiction. But they really sell it and they go with it. And, you know, the shit, it might not make any sense whatsoever if you're a scientist, but it, it, it works, you know, and it's kind of cool. Um, and I like the girl, the um, the uh, lead in this. I guess she was a model. Uh, Yumiko Shaku, I think that's who it is. And uh, she's really pretty. And she was a good, um, a good heroine in this. And uh, the way they did her story where when God, it, it's... 
kind of like a, I don't know, not a reincarnation of Godzilla because they actually part of this movie. They t- at the beginning they talk about the first Godzilla movie and that monster Godzilla and you know it attacking Tokyo and how they uh, ended up how they defeated it and everything. And that monster is part of this movie um, because they find its skeleton and use it to create Mecha Godzilla because this other this new Godzilla and the new Godzilla looks like, you know, it's Godzilla. So they, you know, they call it Godzilla and um, or G, <laughs> I think. And uh, anyway, uh, Gojira. Um, but. The when I said like the pseudoscience or whatever, or you know, not pseudoscience, it's science fiction. Um, they use the DNA of uh, uh, an animal, and so when they f- to make like a sort of a it's it's a robot, but it's sort of like a cyborg because even though it's a robot. It has the DNA of whatever animal um, as its like soul or as whatever, t- you know. So it's not just a straight up robot that they're just driving. This thing has like a, uh, I don't know if I would say like a soul, but it has something going through it. <laughs> because at, at first, they, they uh, one of the, the little girl, the one scientist, he, he has created, he's the, the guy who created this technology, blending technology with, um, you know, DNA and stuff. And she has like a little, I can't remember what it was, like a, a crab or something like that that has armor and everything, but it's just small. And But it, it actually uh, has like living DNA running through it. So when the first time, and the, and the Mechagodzilla has a pilot, the the uh, Yumiko uh, Shaku is uh, you know pilot inside Mecha Godzilla, but when it starts fighting uh, the new Godzilla, um, in the middle of the battle, it starts like on all the um, screens and stuff and sensors. It starts. It, it's like it recognizes Godzilla as one of its own or as part of it or whatever. And then it starts uh, malfunctioning. So you have that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, like I said, I just found this. I thought this was really entertaining. I still want to see Shin Godzilla, and I have it. So I'll be watching that for the next show as soon as I can get it to fucking nail note correctly. Um, next movie. Always, something always goes wrong when you're doing the show. Um, I watched La Note. Uh, which is from 1961. And if it comes up here, I'll be able to tell you somehow about it. Uh, God, good omens from, that's another Amazon original. A uh, day in the life of an unfaithful married couple that steadily is deteriorating during a relationship. And this is Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, written and directed, and it stars Jean Marot and Marcello Mastriani and Monica Vitti. Um, this is a classic and a masterpiece. 
Um, but to be honest with you, again, this might be um, something that it might have just been I wasn't in the mood. Um, but I just couldn't get into it that much. Um, this couple, which is Jean Moreau and uh, Marcelo Mastriani, uh, are a married couple. And um, it starts out, it shows them uh, kind of interacting. They go to... I think see his mother, I believe, in like a uh, be like an old folks home or hospital. And um, he, as they're walking down the hallway, this disturbed woman comes out of her room and she's you know out of her head and everything. And uh, she's kind of uh, like I said, she's she's mentally ill, but she's like you know flirting with him and everything. Well then. When later on, when Jean Moreau leaves the relative's room and goes outside, uh, he's walking down the hallway to go find her. And that woman comes out of the room and he's kind of like a uh, a bit of a player. He's I believe he's a writer. He's like a famous writer, like very famous. Uh, I was going to say like Truman Capote or something like that. But he's if it was uh, Marcello, as far as fame level goes, he is. But as far as how he is he's like a like a warren Beatty kind of a character who's known who the women you know know he's famous and he's he they throw themselves at him and he is um he likes to play around so anyway um it kind of goes through that whole thing of um she knows how he is. She has seen him, and he's kind of one of those, like, uh, as Richard Pryor would say, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes, and and that kind of thing. Again, it's a good movie. I like all the actors in it. I like the way it was shot and everything, but it just wasn't. I, I just think it was one of those things where I wasn't in the mood for this kind of movie. I'll have to go back and watch it again so I can, you know, give it a, a better um, – it has an eight uh eight stars on uh imdb i don't want to say i don't want to rate it like one to ten or anything like that because i think i need to give it a, a more of a chance again i would say the same thing for probably the jersey boys movie and probably for the um um I still want to say slow curve, but that the uh, Clint Eastwood baseball movie, because it's it's there's there's just times where, you know, you you go to watch something and it just doesn't hit with you at that time. And I again, the first time I saw Drive, I remember saying I didn't I didn't like it that much. Subsequent after subsequent viewings, I love it. Say uh, Mandy, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Cause the first time I really was like, man, this is a piece of shit. Uh, the second time when loaf and I reviewed it, I thought, man, this is, I just got into it for what it was. And, uh, and I really liked it. So it, it really does depend on your mood and, uh, you know, maybe what kind of day you had or whatever. And so anyway, this one, and I, again, it's, it's known to be such a good film that I hate, to, I hate to, um, to say, man, it just wasn't, I just didn't think it was that good because I think I, I would rather give it another watch. Uh, and, and, you know, when there's less distractions and things like that, watch the whole thing. Uh, what's the last gladiators, which was a, um, documentary about, um, violence and hockey, the whole, the whole, um, 
movie revolves around Chris Nyland, who was a hockey player that played for the Montreal Canadiens, then um, the Boston Bruins, and then the New York Rangers, and then back to the Canadiens. Uh, at the, you know, uh, they brought him back so they could, you know, to retire his jersey and everything, or to, to you know, as a going away when he, they knew he was going to retire. Um, he went through the guy got caught up in the um his he wasn't really the best he wasn't really the best like hockey players for skills go and everything but his dad was a green beret he was brought up kind of with that tough kind of attitude they said even though he wasn't like a big guy he would always take up for his friends uh, on the schoolyard or whatever if somebody was picking on somebody he would go over and and just jump like a, a way bigger guy and you know start wailing on him and everything he was like a protector he had that in him to um you know uh, he didn't have the fear for his own safety and he just weighed in and just and that's how he was in hockey he would fight guys that were a lot bigger but they said you know he was kind of he was fucking crazy you know and he got in that mindset of um it's like a lot of these guys that are in mma or even pro wrestling, they 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 get in that that um, that mindset of how to deal with things, and it's okay, you know, when you go out and get drunk and party and and um, fucking do some cocaine and get in a fight, and you know you're fighting on the ice all the time. So if some guy gives you some lip in a in a restaurant or a bar, you knock the shit out of him, and then the cops come, and you know it's different, you know. Um, it's a good documentary. And it just shows you how fucked up uh, people can be and how a certain profession can take that fucked up person and use them. Um, they fit in. It would be like boxing or like a, a violent sport uh, or somebody who's a sociopath that uh, um, or... Uh, idiot savant or something like that where they they're they're a misfit in public uh, and as far as now this guy he that you know they said he as far as his teammates and everything go and you know the french teammates and the uh anglo teammates they usually would be separate but he'd say hey let's all get together you know and he was all about the team like a family and everything and socializing and going out and everything but then the drugs and the drinking and uh, the violence and things like that, you know, just got a hold of him. And it's weird hearing him, his perspective, you know, this guy's a fucking pussy and, and all this and that. But he was trained that way. He was brought up that way. He was rewarded for that. And the other guys that are like, ooh, you know, um, you know, a Yankee boy, you know, go out there and, uh, you know, did you see what they did to our guy, Yankee boy, go out there. And he was a college guy and the other guys would be like, hey, college boy. So he had to prove himself. You know, they would say, ah, you're just a college boy and everything. So he would say, well, fuck, you know, and he'd talk the shit and they'd be like, oh, shit, you know, maybe this college boy, maybe this, maybe this Yankee college boy, maybe he, you know, whatever. And then they end up loving him. <laughs> but it's an interesting character study. There are parts of it where I 
uh, you know, you kind of are like, you know, fucking meathead, you know, and, and, but you know, it's, it's easy to sit back and say that, but when these guys are going through this violence and they're getting hurt and they get hooked on the pain pills and the drinking and the, and the, uh, also like the, almost like a frat boy, kind of a, you know, jock kind of, uh, attitude, um, and, but with the addiction and things like that. And, and, and if it was somebody, uh, he, he's trying to, uh, he's brought up in this macho male culture where, you know, if you cry or you ask for help or whatever, you know, you're a pussy, even, even when he was hooked on painkillers so bad, uh, you know, you're supposed to take, you know, uh, one, uh, Percocet or whatever, every, um, you know, say four to six hours as needed. And he was taking 12 at a time, you know, to get high. And, um, he literally realized, you know, Hey man, I'm hooked on this shit and I need help. And he went to the hospital to get fucking cleaned up. And his dad, who's this now, you know, an older, older guy, senior citizen, but he was a former green beret, you know, jumped out of airplanes, I think fought in Vietnam and all this and that. And his dad, even during the documentary, when they're interviewing, he says, you know, he goes, that was the most ashamed I've ever been in my life going in here, seeing him laying there like a goddamn, you know, fucking zombie crying drugs. And he's asking for help. He can't overcome it himself. Nobody can. He don't cut uh, Gary Bettman as the new commissioner of the NHL. And because of like the concussions, uh, where there's a lot more free skating, uh, skating and skill and love to intimidate the other team and stuff like that. There's a, there's a, uh, entertain people. And these guys, not only that, but then just, um, you know, the violence in, in itself. And, uh, um, it almost became like a, uh, staged fights, not that they weren't actually fighting, but they would have two of their biggest, you know, the, the goons wouldn't fight anybody, that wasn't another goon. So you just had these guys on the team that they might not even play a lot of the time, but when they needed a, uh, when they needed a spark to spark their team, if their team was losing or whatever, they'd send out this big guy out on the ice. It's like the movie goon, you know? Um, and, uh, then the other guys enforcer comes out and they go at it. They might just right when they drop the puck, just drop their gloves and, square off and it's like the two gunfighters you know and the crowd goes crazy but in the older days you know when they if they had a fight it was more you know somebody would cheap shot somebody and you go get them you know and and they or the teams didn't like each other or you hated each other these guys are like hey man i gotta fight you tonight okay let's go fight you know so it's it was it's a pretty good documentary um i watched avengement which is a Scott Adkins uh, movie that um, totally awesome Fabian. Oh, why did I click on Avengers fucking Endgame? I didn't like that movie. Avengement. Uh, Fabian on Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema recommended this one. Um, it is uh, written and directed by Jesse V. Johnson. Uh, written by Jesse V. Johnson and Stu Small. And it stars Scott Adkins, Craig Fabris, uh, Thomas Turgus. Uh, who else is in this song, bitch? I don't think anybody famous. Luis Mandalore. I saw him and um, 
Scott Adkins in a in another movie that I really liked, where they were the collectors. Um, what was that one called? They were they were going they were like collect money. Oh, I gotta go down further. I'm sorry. Not the arrangement. Debt collect the debt collector. That one was really good, and those two were really good as a team, kind of like a not a buddy cop because they weren't cops. They were like you know, strong arm debt collectors, but they were really good together. And I did not know of this, um, um, Louis, uh, Louis Mandalore. I guess he's Costas Mandalore's brother. Uh, but he was good. And, uh, they were, they had a, I'd like to see them team up like that and kind of more of a funny thing. This one was not funny. (laughs) I think it was supposed to be a little bit, but it wasn't, um, Fabian really liked it. I thought it was okay. It was, average maybe a little below average um you have two brothers and um one of them is the head of uh like a kind of a mafia kind of a thing and his younger brother is scott adkins and um, he's trying to get involved and everything so they have him go do this job and he ends up going to prison and um while he's in prison, he has like a price on his head. So the entire time he's in prison, people are just trying to kill him constantly. So he has to toughen up to survive and find out who it is and get back at him. So he becomes like, by the time he leaves, he's the baddest motherfucker on the planet. You know, he's got these big, like fucking, uh, like gold teeth and from where they had knocked his teeth out and shit. And he's got scars all over his face, but it's, it's just not that good. Um, it was just okay. It was okay. It's worth a watch. Don't buy it. I bought it. <laughs> right. I, I don't even know if I wait until it's on Netflix for free. I wouldn't even rent it. Um, unless you have like $3 and 99 cents or something like that. You don't give a fuck about and you're a Scott Adkins, um, uh, com- complete But like I said, I'd wait for it for free. Um, it was just okay. It wasn't nothing to write home about. Uh, what the hell are you? I went to see John Wick 3. I feel like I've talked about it. The second one to come out. But then when I went to see it, I was like, man, that wasn't... It It had all the action, all the fighting, all the shooting and that shit. But it missed something. It didn't have the soul of the first one. Now the... And I need to rewatch that one. I bought it on Amazon as a used uh, DVD or a used Blu-ray, I think. And then I got the son of a bitch, and it doesn't fucking play. And it cost more to, um, it would cost me more to ship it back to the fucking guy than the goddamn DVD fucking cost. So it was it was real cheap. So I don't know if I got ripped off or if for some reason it just doesn't play. It might play in another player. I'll have to try in another player, but. Um, I wasn't that heartbroken because, like I said, I just didn't think that one was that good. This one was really good. Now, I did feel like it went a little bit too long. Uh, It's two hours and 11 minutes. Um, Because I even was saying at this one point in the movie, and it was probably about an hour and a half to an hour and 40 minutes. Okay, they should stop it right here. And then... Do the next, and then do the next 
movie the the because they're going to do another one i assume i'm pretty sure um but they kept going now a lot of what ended up happening after that it was badass fighting and everything but they really could have ended it after an hour and a half hour and 40 minutes and fucking ended it and it would have been great i would have been like fuck yeah that was great it went right through i didn't look at my watch one time but after that hour and 40 minutes i looked at my watch and it just and then it kept going and i was like okay Got and and I had Shay uh, visions of Avengers Endgame, and I was like, "Son of a bitch, why the fuck do these movies think that they have to keep going, going and going and going? Especially these action movies like this. It does not have to be two fucking plus hours or three hours of a fucking movie. Now, like I said, this one's two hours and eleven minutes. They could have shaved off a half hour off this motherfucker and it would have been perfect. They did not need... They could have saved that last part as the other, for the next movie. Um, they get too caught up to me in the stunt fest of Keanu. You know, I thought it was cool when the first John Wick, when they had a video on YouTube which showed Keanu Reeves like doing his gun training and everything at this uh, shooting range and everything. That was really cool. But then it's like, okay, you know, I guess in some ways <laughs> I made a joke that uh, uh, today's modern day acting, uh, going to acting school is learning to shoot every kind of gun, how to reload it fast, how to roll and shoot and use every scenario. Instead of, uh, instead of going to Lee Strasberg or whoever and learning acting, uh, you just go and learn to become a killing machine with a fucking gun and how to dismantle it and put it back together in 50 different ways. Um, now, this one, I swear to God, I, I, I know one homage was in it from, I think, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where Clint was up in his um, room at the hotel and he's cleaning his gun and then he hears guys coming up the steps and he has to tr put his gun back together as fast as he can because they're going to come in and kill him. So he's putting it together and then he only has time to put like one bullet in and spin the fucking cylinder. The guy comes in and they, you yeah. know, so you kind of had a scene like that, which I th I'm hundred percent is an homage to Sergio Leone and man with no name movie. I think it was good, bad, and the ugly. And then you also had uh, uh, another homage to that with, uh, which was from the Eli Wallach, uh, uh, when he played the ugly in the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, where he, uh, takes a gun or goes into like a uh, gun store and takes like the guy showing him these guns. And he takes like about three or four guns and takes them all apart and uses the, the pieces that he likes from each one. But I, but, and I, I just said, I sort of got, but I'm telling you, and I know that they probably didn't have anything to do with this. I swear I was sitting there thinking, did I just see an homage to the movie Pootie Tang? <laughs> and I think it was. Because Pootie Tang, in the movie Pootie Tang, <laughs> what a day. Pootie Tang's weapon of choice was his belt. His leather belt with his big belt buckle. And he'd take it off and whip it out there and fucking whoosh. <laughs> 
Putatang Watate. And he would uh, spin it around and he would have it back in the loops on his pants in like two seconds. He would just go, like when he was, he'd whip it out there like a whip and he'd whip it around people like a lasso and all this stuff. But when he would go and whip it back around his waist, it wouldn't just go around his waist and hook. It would go through the, the, um, the, that wouldn't be eyelets. What would it be? Like the loops on your pants. He wouldn't sit there and, you know, use both hands and put them through each loop and everything. He'd just whip it back around, and the end of it would go, and it would go all the way around him like a snake by itself through the loops and then buckle itself. And you have a Keanu, a fucking John Wick homage to Pootie Tang with the belt. So I thought that was kind of funny. Now, that just is the doctor's on theory, but I thought it was pretty fucking funny. And it made me want to go watch Pootie Tang again. Um, I I like this. I'm not a fan of Halle Berry. I know I've talked shit on Halle Berry on the podcast a bunch of times as far as her acting goes. But she's good looking. Um, I thought she was very good looking in um, Swordfish and in the James Bond movie. Uh, But I didn't and probably still don't think she's a great actress and definitely did not deserve an an Oscar. But um, she was really good in this. I like the dogs, her two dogs. Um, um, and this had uh, some horse action in it, too. Um, Keanu in fucking New York City. And then next thing you know, he's got some horses involved in some things, which is pretty cool. Um, the villains were good in this. Um, I told Rolf one of the one of the things that bothered me in this, and I think Keanu is a year older than me, is his hair is too fucking dyed too goddamn black. Okay, he's fifty fucking four years old, and his hair is so goddamn black it looked like they took his. Well, first of all, I thought it looked like extensions or looked like a goddamn wig in this movie. I didn't notice that in the other two. I think that they put extensions on him. Now, one thing is when they're doing the uh, karate scenes and the uh, martial arts, if he has a stunt double and he's got like a kind of a wig on or extensions that hang down over his face, they can make it look a lot better and you can't tell it's the stunt double. But I've mentioned this as far as Tom Cruise goes too. He's getting too old to have hair that is one solid fucking dark color that doesn't have any gray, doesn't have one. Even when I had, even when I had just brown hair, I don't, when someone dyes their hair, you can tell it's every hair is one fucking dark ass color. It looks like Keanu, they grabbed him by his ankles and dipped his head in a bucket of roofing tar. Black fucking tar. It's like what Ronald Reagan was like fucking 80 years old and his hair was jet black with not one fucking gray hair. Not one hair that is even a little bit of a different color. And that's how Keanu, and it's not only the hair on his head, he has that... that um, kind of five o'clock shadow beard it's more than five o'clock shadow but they dyed it really fucking super black too and he's too old his he looks like a 50 some year old guy and now john wick doesn't appear to me to be a guy 
who goes to the hair salon and dyes his fucking hair, you know, or, or goes home, puts on the little fucking plastic gloves that are in just for men on his hands and sits there and dyes his hair fucking pitch black. It's too fucking black. And I always said in the Indiana Jones movies, even from the first Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford must have bad knees first, or he's, he's bow legged and has bad knees because when those pygmies were chasing him at the beginning of that one fucking Indiana, I think it's the first Indiana Jones movie. He runs like he's got a dick up his ass and he's fucking bow legged like fucking Popeye and he's running. Well then when uh, Harrison Ford even got older, his knees got worse. So when he runs, he looks bad. It's like watching Dolph run. Dolph runs like he's got bad knees. I fucking have a bad fucking knee or my left knee. I have a bad knee. And that's how it is. You're getting old. Um, Keanu runs like somebody at one time in his life took a baseball bat and hit him in both knees. Now, Another thing about John Wick, and I know, I mean, this is fucking preaching to the choir, and it's it's an it's also into the Fast and the Furious kind of bullshit. And this goes even back to the first John Wick movie, definitely the second one, and definitely in this one, you have to suspend fucking disbelief because John Wick is fucking Wolverine from the X Men. The motherfucker, okay, he may have a suit. What kind of suit do you are you looking for, sir? Tactical. Number two, Keanu still can't act very well, but that's part of his charm for me now. Um, but even with the tactical suit, as many rounds that are being fired at him, his head is not a tactical head unless he has tactical extensions in that fucking black fucking mop. His face and his head are exposed. His hands are exposed. Even with the best um, body armor, unless it's that real big-ass, thick fucking body armor like the soldiers fucking wear. It's like a giant flak jacket. It still fucking hurts. And if it's something as thin as that suit that he's wearing, yes, it might stop. I don't want to get into too much of that bullshit because like i said you're suspending disbelief but he gets way now okay in in several of the and i think maybe in all three movies when he gets fucked up bad like a doctor will say here take these pills for the pain and take these pills they'll give you energy so they're giving him like some kind of uh amphetamine and they're giving him some painkillers or whatever so maybe you can say um they're doping him up big time. So that's why he's like that. And it's not like a, a big thing that since all the way back to war movies or um, uh, cowboy movies that the bad guys can't shoot for shit. The good guys can always shoot and are fucking like sharpshooters with every fucking shot. So I can see that. So when you watch this, you have to suspend disbelief about all that shit. I know I love the first John Wick and my sister, my brother-in-law, and I think uh, my um, niece's boyfriend went to see John Wick, the first one, and they fucking hated it. They thought it was complete. They thought it was fucking, or it might have been the second one. I can't remember, but they thought it was stupid. And again, I, I when you're looking at it, you have to go into it almost like you're watching. 
when you're when I'm watching Fast and the Furious or I'm watching John Wick, I I'm looking at it like I'm watching a comic book movie and uh, almost like a superhero kind of a thing, because there's no way that these that John Wick could sustain all the damage that he does and get up and keep going. And not only that, but fight guys that are a hundred times fresher than him and not injured and still be superior. Baba Yaga. And then take the time to go home and dye his fucking hair. <laughs> Motherfucker. Um, but I thought it was really good. I want to go back and give number two wick to us another chance. Um, wick one. I loved, I loved this one. I'll watch this one again. I'll buy it when it comes out. Okay, so big recommend for John Wick 3. Um, but again, disclaimer, when you watch it, you and, and uh, um, you have the, the guys that do um, like the Tony Jaw, like Ray, and uh, Raid uh, Redemption Raid two, and Raid 2 and everything. There's that influence here, and you see actually see, I think, some of the guys – um, that were that do those movies and the stunts and all that. Um, what's his name? Oh fuck! What's his name? Shit! God damn it! I'll never find it now. Anyway, but whatever. The main the the, the main uh, b- badass guy from uh, the first raid that is the main henchman. That's like the fucking demon fighter. Um, you see him in this, he's a prominent guy in this. So, and it's, it's that kind of violence. And I think that that's why, uh, when it did get down to the end with the violence and the fighting and everything that they went a little long on it. Uh, because when you watch the raid, when you watch, uh, raid two or any of the Tony jaw movies or stuff like that, um, it's a fucking total stunt fest. And, uh, but they need to learn that sometimes less is more and, um, you don't have to fucking, it doesn't have to be an endurance test. Uh, you know, fighting is fighting. And, um, I've seen some of those movies where it almost like when they go too long with it, it's like, God damn. Okay. We've seen this. These guys have fucking been fighting for the past hour and a half straight uh do we need to see another half hour of yeah they're cool moves and they're cool stunts and you're coming up with clever and and really vicious violence and cool stuff but god damn it edit that shit bitch (laughs) um let's see i watched the mummy with brendan frazier um just I don't know. It was on Netflix and I haven't seen it in a while. It's a fun movie and I like the way that it's done. And uh, Brendan Fraser is on doom patrol now. Uh, and I like that because I, I liked him and I liked him in um, the quiet American with Michael Caine and in gods and monsters. He got a little chubby, but again with now, see, I also think that Keanu Reeves looks like he's, like he's not the fittest motherfucker in the world because again, he's 54 years old. You can tell that he's got some, probably got some knee problems and stuff. And he, he kind of walks like me. He's a little bit kind of slow and humped over and he's just feeling his age. Um, but Brendan Frazier looks like 
a guy should look at his age. He's not like Matthew McConaughey where he's all cut up and fucking uh, looks like he has 0% body fat and all that shit. He's gained some weight. And, uh, but he's, I still like the guy and he's got charisma and he's a funny guy. He's a likable guy. Um, in the mummy, he was excellent in that. And I remember they said they picked him because he was likable. He was the kind, they had somebody else in mind, but then when they saw him, they said, I want that guy because he can be like an Errol Flynn kind of a guy. Uh, not just a hard ass, badass guy. Um, like say, I don't know, like Charles Bronson or Steve McQueen or somebody like that, but somebody that can play the comical and funny parts too. And I thought he was really good. And I loved the costumes in that. I loved his outfit in that, uh, where they said they were kind of like, you know, the the American cowboy or whatever, plus the, um, like French foreign legion stuff at the beginning. And he was part of that. And it's kind of like a high adventure, but it's, um, it's, it's like a horror, high adventure and funny shit in it too. So I I liked all that together. I liked that movie. It's a, it's an entertaining it's an entertaining movie and it's something you could watch with your kid if your kid's a little bit older. I I think that it would probably be too scary with the mummy and stuff like that if they were too young, but it doesn't have like um, you know, dirty stuff in it or anything. Although that that one chick at the beginning was pretty hot. Um I watched The Wandering Earth. I think this was a recommendation from The Frost Giant at Paleo Cinema. Plus, I've heard some other people talking about it. Let me bring it up here because, again, as we know from listening to the beginning of the show, the IMDb got fucked up. This is a Chinese movie. Um, and, of course, any movie that's made in China or Hong Kong now, I think, because they took over Hong Kong again after so many years, but, um, yeah, China, um, the government is involved in the movie, financing the movie, making the movie. It's going to tell you what you can put in, what you can't, and you know, how they want it to play out and everything again, like Wolf warrior and the sequel to that and everything. I, I put aside, um, the political stuff and I really enjoyed those two. Uh, even though they were, very different. The first one was a big um, spectacle with uh, kind of a oh, lots of tanks, lots of airplanes, lots of big battles and things like that. And then that's what I expected in the second one. The second one's a lot more uh, toned down. It's like the Raid 1 versus the Raid 2 or something, you know. Uh, but I enjoyed both of them. Uh, the Wandering Earth is based on a novel. Um written by Gong Gong Gear. Uh, I think in uh this was directed by Front Guo. Stars Jing Wu, uh Xu Xiao Ku, uh Gong Li. Um I really enjoyed this. And again, I think I don't know if it was uh, Terry Frost was the one that recommended or who recommended it, but they were even saying, you know, how come more people haven't seen this? It's really good. And it's on Netflix for free. So you have no reason not to see it. Uh, the Chinese name is Lu Lang D Q. Now this movie is two hours and five minutes long. Um, this one is one of those movies where they, they build, uh, They create and build a world. 
course it's it's earth and everything but it's it's more of like a kind of it's not a climate change thing but the it kind of reminded me of almost like a snow piercer movie where there is a there has been a climate disaster but there is impending doom coming to earth and they have to figure out a way to save the planet save everybody on it but by saving the planet um and the sun is petering out so earth has been devastated by that but eventually you know they need to figure out a way to again save earth save everybody on earth so uh, like the Godzilla movie Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla you have you know science fiction of how they're going to go about doing this now the title is called the wandering earth so i don't want to give anything away with this other than um okay i really enjoyed it i loved all the costumes i loved the special effects and everything i loved the science fiction that they came up with to explain what they were going to do and now this kind of gets off some people look at it as a political thing because the chinese are communist and the people are all communists and they're all supposed to work for the greater good of the you know the government or the the country the fatherland the motherland whatever you want to call it um and you could look at this as a propaganda thing as they are uh, in this movie using that mentality to work together or like and i'm not saying that i think chinese communism is good or anything like that um but the concept of everybody working together for the cause for the greater good of humanity not china but for humanity this is everybody on the planet working together every country uh, they have to all come together to work together to save the planet um, is a pretty cool concept now i did read that there were in the america or the american in the english version there are parts of the movie that are cut out that were filmed and that are in other versions of uh, and, and they said that by cutting that out there's things in this that you might think okay why are they doing this or why are they doing that or why am i seeing this and they explain what it is there's some and that is done i think more for political reasons uh that there's things in there that they don't want to show um they're okay with showing somewhere else but not in this version or whatever and it's not anything that's like major it does add to it when you know and i would like to see the version that does have that although it might make it a little bit longer um again i love the fucking costumes and stuff in this and i love all the all of it for the most part most of it even though it's a sci-fi movie and they're wearing these um you know look like astronaut outfits and things like that the better part of it does take place on earth although there are parts of it that do take place in space uh, it's worth a watch if you're a science fiction fan it's definitely worth a watch and even if you're not full-blown science fiction geek science fiction nerd science fiction uh 
um, cinephile, uh, you'll, I think you'll still like it. I thought it was very good. And I, I'm thinking, I can't remember. See, this is how good it is. I love when you watch a movie that's a foreign film and you can't remember if it was dubbed or if you read subtitles because you got so into it. I can't fucking remember. I think it actually does have both. I think it has the subtitles, uh, but it also has a dubbed audio and you can choose either one or both, you know. So I really enjoyed that one. That was a good one. Um, I watched a, a documentary, another hockey documentary called Tough Guy, and it's about this guy, Bob Probert, who for the longest time was the, they said he was like the heavyweight champion of the NHL. Uh, he was not as much a goon as a lot of guys, like the guys that I said that would only play, they would just go out and fight, and the only reason they'd be on ice would be to fight. He could actually play, but he was really tough. Uh, but again, I'm kind of one of these people that when I would see him beating people on videos and he did get beat at times, um, but not very often, um, he had number one, he was on drugs. (laughs) He was on cocaine and, and he was doing illegal drugs. So I'm sure he was doing probably, uh, the painkillers, um, speed and anything else that he could take to give him an edge. Uh, because he had, he was arrested several times for cocaine and, and stuff like that. And, uh, alcoholic. Um, but also he was one of the first ones that would gimmick up his Jersey. So say two guys match. Well, in a hockey fight, one thing you have to keep in mind is you're balancing yourself on a fucking pair of skates. For the most part, there's a lot of people that can't even stand up on fucking skates, let alone fucking fight where somebody's tugging at you and you're tugging at them and you're uh, trying to pull each other off balance while you're also trying to punch each other in the fucking face. Um, Probert would gimmick his jersey. It, it wasn't tied down or anything. And if you would watch uh, a lot of his fights, as soon as the other guy grabs his jersey, he immediately starts skating backwards, skating backwards, skating backwards. And the guy's pulling on him, trying to get him, pulling on his jersey, pulling his jersey. Till the jersey, it used to be, they would do a thing in the old days where when you would get in a fight, one thing you would try and do is pull the other guy's jersey up over his head so he would be blinded with the jersey up over his head and you could sit there and just punch him. Well, they would do this thing where they would wear, a, a, a like say, like an extra, double extra large jersey. And the hockey jerseys are big and baggy anyway. But they wouldn't tie him down. And then when the guy would grab a hold of his jersey... He would start skating backwards, skating backwards, and you're like, okay. And the guy, once the jersey came up over his head, it would just come off. And with in a hockey fight, you want to grab, it's like almost like in wrestling where you have like a collar and elbow. You have one hand around the guy, back of the guy's neck and the other hand on his elbow. When a hockey fight, you want to grab, number one, the reason is, you grab... They used to say you grab the one guy, if you're right-handed, you grab the guy with your left hand, his jersey, a handful of jersey on his shoulder, so you can hang on to him and fucking punch him with your right hand. And then there's different techniques the guys would grab each, you know, uh, you get to where the guys are one, you know, both hands, you grab right hand on the guy's shoulder and the other shoulder. Guys grab down around the elbows so that they're trying to throw a punch and you got a hold of their arms and they can't fucking punch. And, and, uh, there's a lot of times there's a struggle like that, or a guy gets it like tiger Williams who played for the Maple Leafs and the Max, he get in real, a small guy, 
uh, Bob Kelly, who played for the, the Hound, he played for my Flyers. He'd get in real close, you know, with his with his head right on your fucking chest. Gary Howitt from the Islanders, head right on your chest, and he'd have a hold of you and get you in there close because he was a smaller guy. And then he would fucking you know throw those punches in tight. And you in the old days you could headbutt and stuff like that and pull hair, but you, they got to where you couldn't do that. And in the old days, guys didn't wear helmets, so. Uh, you get guys eye gouging and everything else, biting fingers and everything. Well, the newer guys that you got that ended, you know, your right hand, if you're left hand, your left hand. And if you could get that hand loose, man, you could wail on a guy. And Probert, the thing is, when, when the when the jersey would come all the way off, he wouldn't have the the um, all his gear underneath. Uh, and at that time, like now, the shoulder pads and the gear that they wear under their jerseys, the the guys now, when they're out there skating, they look like they're fucking like football players. They have these big shoulder pads on everything. Back then and before, the shoulder pads and the elbow pads and everything weren't weren't very big at all. And when you would see Probert fight when he was in his prime, the jer- he'd always back up. The guy would end up pulling his jersey over his head. Then there's nothing to grab a hold of. Like some guys wouldn't even wear like any kind of a t-shirt or anything under their pads. And the pads are so small. Probert and Marty McSorley and those guys, they would have it, the straps on their elbow pads and everything. They wouldn't even be hooked. So that would even come off. It'd just be hanging there. So you didn't have anything to grab a hold of. You, you, you're just grabbing a hold of, of sweaty flesh and you can't grab a hold of that. So then they would have the, the, uh, the um, advantage and just beat the fuck out of it. So anyway, when I was talking about the Chris Nyland documentary, which I wasn't a big fan of Chris Nyland or anything, he, he has a lot of heart, and he's a, he's a, a, sm- a smaller guy, uh, and he had a lot of heart, and he, he wasn't a quitter as far as fighting, and he was tough and everything, and again, taking up for his own teammates and everything. Say what you want outside the with uh, getting involved with drugs and things like that. It was an addiction problem and things like that. Probert ended up... He went to jail. I don't know how many times he got caught with cocaine. He was always getting in trouble. I, I at the same time that I watched this documentary, I, I got his biography and um, I was reading that book and I was like, man, this guy, I, 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 I wish I wouldn't even fucking read this book. Uh, cheated on every girl he fucking went out with and just like bragging about it, cheating on his wife all the time, bragging about it. He's got little kids and everything. He's fucking doing drugs all the time. He's doing fucking cocaine. His wife doesn't know where he's at. He's fucking getting in fights uh, with everybody and, uh, you know, unrepentant about just about everything. And then, I mean, he kind of is, but it's kind of like he isn't because he was always blaming somebody else. Like, the you know, if a, the, this player on the team said he should be kicked off the team, that son of a bitch, you know, fucking he should stand by his teammates and everything, the coach. You know, the co- it's the coach's fault. Uh, they tried to give him um, these pills because they knew he was an alcoholic. And they tried to give the the trainer or the coach had these pills um, that they give to alcoholics that when they take them, if you drink, you get like violently sick. So it keeps you from drinking. And he snuck in the coach's office and fucking swiped, swapped out the pills with like uh, Tylenol or something. So when the coach gave him the pill, it was, you know, it was just like, it was like a, an immature fucking kid. And he's this big guy and he's got a wife, he's got little kids and everything. And it was just kind of, and it, it was that way. Now, I don't know how to put it. I, it just really turned me off. 
I'm sure that the people that knew him that were friends with him and, you know, his wife and his kids and everything loved him. And his friends said, you know, he's a really great guy and everything, but man, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's like Jake, the snake Roberts, uh, in that documentary. Yeah. Okay. Jake, you know, eventually he turns it around and everything in the one, when they were talking about like DDP, uh, the wrestler DDP helping him out with his addictions and got him into the yoga, got him into treatment and everything and got him clean and sober. But if you watch beyond the mat and that Jake, the snake where he's still doing drugs, he's still, you know, uh, fucking the, uh, you know, girls and doing drugs and just, you know, going to see his daughter, but he's fucking high then. And she's giving him shit cause she knows he's high and he's a piece of shit. That Jake the Snake is like this Bob Probert in the book and the documentary. And it's kind of like, you know, fuck, man. I mean, I just, I I found it very hard to feel sorry for him in any way because, like, he wasn't sitting there saying, you know, I'm fucked up. I need help. I want to be a better person and everything it was like he was still it was everybody else's fault you know what's the big deal you know and um uh you know yeah i fucked around and uh you know i went this place and uh so and so had an eight ball and they offered me so i did it so who gives you know what's the big deal blah, blah, blah. the coach is being an asshole the the uh the commissioner's being an asshole. This teammate was an asshole. You know, this guy's a good guy because he stood by me no matter what I did. And uh, But this guy's an asshole because he said I shouldn't be on the team. And it was just kind of – it was just like, eh, I don't know. Just I, Like I said, maybe if I was a Red Wings fan or a Blackhawks fan, you know. But it just I, – I, I bought the book. And I, I've read other hockey books and other sports books about guys that were on drugs – and uh, whether they turned it around or they didn't, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, this one, both of them, I just kind of like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't a fucking asshole. He probably had a good heart. He, you know, took up for his teammates. Um, and I'm sure, it, you know, he, I, I know he did say that, you know, hell, he didn't want to go out there and fight all the time, you know. And that's what a lot of those guys are. And that's one thing that, um, uh, a lot of them would say, you know, fuck, you know, that's, that was, it was like it was my job to go out there and fight every night. And and uh, knowing you're going to have to fight this guy who's like really tough and and uh, you couldn't sleep the night before and you didn't want to. You don't you know, it's it just sucks. But um, and they get caught up in that. Um, I can understand that. Maybe I'm. I shouldn't be judgmental, I guess. I don't know. But um I think the book, because uh, a lot of the stuff in the documentary was him on tape, uh, where they had taped interviews. Guy had interviewed him, and it was almost word for word what was in the book. So a lot of the book was transcribed from that stuff, from those interviews. Um, but anyway, enough of that. It's it's worth a watch. I just didn't care for it that much, and I'm a big hockey fan. Um, I watched a movie called The Checkist. Now this one was one I found out about. Let me look it up here real quick. This one was one I found out about on another movie group. Um, someone was talking about movies that were, I guess, disturbing. And um, I had never heard about this. It's a movie, a Russian-made movie. Uh, and one reason I haven't heard about it is because, of course, when the Soviet Union was still around... Um, 
you were never going to see it. And then uh, when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union uh, went under, um, this movie came out. It's very good. It is very disturbing. Um, in kind of a, um, in the same way that um, Come and See, the World War II movie is. Um, in almost, I was telling a friend at work about it. And the thing that is the most disturbing, okay, first of all, it's a true story. Uh, the events that are in this movie happened and happened. And one of the reasons it's disturbing is, is because it happened all the time and it became like a assembly line, kind of a cold assembly line, kind of a um, machine, almost like the Nazis with the concentration camps where, um, you know, they put you on the train, you fucking come to the place, they you get out, they have you take all your clothes off, they give you, you know, your little fucking uniform, they take every possession you have, they shave your head, you go in this place, and then it's like, I, I watched a, a movie um, about the lady uh, Temple Grandin, uh, who was an autistic woman, who, uh, when she was in school, went uh, and learned... Um, like animal husbandry and things like that. She was interested in uh, animals and things like that. And she would explain how um, she saw things as an autistic person. Um, if she saw a door open, she would see the angles and all the thing, like the, the uh, measurements and how it worked. She could figure out how anything fucking worked and how, and, and uh, again, you know, the, whether, it's, you know, the term idiot savant or whatever like that. Um, she had a hard time functioning in society because of her autism. Um, because of she didn't see things and feel things or understand things as far as like emotion and how to interact with people. Uh, that we would take for granted every day. And of course, uh, on the spectrum, uh, uh, autistic people, there's d different uh, levels and things like that. Um, but she got into as far as like uh, cattle and, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is it directly has to do with like what I was talking about with this movie, The Czechist from 1992, or say Schindler's List or movies about Nazi concentration camps. Um, the way that uh, slaughterhouses would, um, the, the whole machine, the whole machinations of how the system worked in a slaughterhouse, where you have these cows and you put them in this thing and they go down and they go in this uh, like trough full of this, um, liquid that has um i don't know if it's pesticides or what you want to call it it's like this milky water and they go in there submerged and it gets all the the uh 
parasites and everything off of them. And then they come up out of there and uh, they're using like these electric cattle prods to shock them, to keep them moving. And the cows get scared and they're all mooing real loud. And they're, you know, they're scared of me. Well, see the cowboys and stuff. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way it works. Fuck, you know, shit. And, you know, you see these things uh, about slaughterhouses and, and feed yards and things like that where people are cruel to the animals because they're like, ah, they're just going to go, they're just a dumb animal. They're just going to go in there. We're going to, you know, kill them anyway, and they're, we're going to be eating burgers out of them and all this stuff. Um, Temple Grandin's thing was she figured out the cows. Why are they making so much noise? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And it was how they were being treated and how they reacted to certain stimuli. And the guy goes, well, who gives a fuck? This is the way we've been doing it for years. Why are we still going to be doing it? And she said, yes, but uh, one thing that struck me and that I even feel this way because people say, well, you know, like people that are vegetarians or people that are whatever. And they, or you say something about an animal, you know, well, they fucking, you know, how can somebody, they treat this dog uh, poorly or abuse it or whatever. And they said, well, shit, you fucking eat a hamburger. What the hell? You know, you, that's an animal. You're fucking eating that cow and everything. And somebody even brought that up to her because they said, Hey, you know, we just take them in there and they take, you know, the, the uh, stun gun thing, uh, bolt gun, that Anton Chigurh used in uh, No Country for Old Men. That's a thing that they use on cows. You know, they used to, they would take a big sledgehammer and they'd hit them in the fucking head with it. And sometimes it would kill them outright and sometimes it wouldn't kill them right away and you'd have to hit them again. Or I think at one time maybe, and somebody can correct me on this, but I, I thought I remember at one time where they would shoot them like with a twenty two in the, in the head or something like that. And... um the one thing Temple Grandin, like I said, she she wasn't she she couldn't feel emotion. She didn't understand emotion, like the way I do. I love animals, so even thinking about it, I might eat a hamburger or eat a steak or a piece of chicken or something like that. But if I start thinking about it, and I I'm driving by a field and I see a cow out there with and a little calf or just a cow or whatever, and I'm like, man, you know. But they, you know, they don't know what they're in for. They they're just out there eating grass. They're thinking, Pick, man, this is the life, you know. But, or who knows what the fuck they're thinking. <laughs> anyway, um, but what I'm saying is the th- the thing that he was talking to uh, Rambo after what's-his-name shot the deer, he went over and took his knife out and, and jumped on it because he, he just wanted to do it and, like, uh, st- stab the deer with his knife or something. I'm like, man, if you're going to kill that fucking deer and, you know, okay, you eat the meat and everything, one shot, one kill should be the ultimate thing. And uh, it almost goes back to, for me, like how you feel like that when you see these movies about the Native Americans where if they killed the buffalo or something, they didn't sit there and, and mock it in death or desecrate its body or something. You show respect. You took this thing's life uh, and you're not doing it because you're getting off on it or it's funny or something a matter of survival or, you know, I, I hope I'm coming across and saying what, you know, I want to say, but, you know, to go over it, that's like, that's like when you hear about serial killers and how they abuse animals and mutilate them and things like that. And they, you know, like getting off on it. Or if you're so fucking immature, I can see if you're like, you're a kid, uh, 
and you don't know any better. Like you hear, you know, when you're a kid, like a lot of little kids are mean to animals or, you know, kill them or accidentally kill them or whatever because they don't understand. When I'm talking about Temple Grandin and her creating, and that was Claire Danes who played her in the movie. Really good movie um, about autism and just a good movie all all around. Um, made for HBO. Um, with the Czechist or with the Nazi concentration camps and things like that, it's the same thing. It's the same principle. The Nazis took almost like a slaughterhouse-like thing and turned that into a, a, a system and a machine to kill human beings. And they thought of Jews as lesser human beings or the uh, you know uh, Eastern European subhumans or the gays or the uh, dwarfs or uh, the mentally challenged people or people who were sick or whatever. And they would put them, like in that movie, uh, Temple Grandin, where they were dealing with the slaughterhouses, they'd put them in that machine. They'd, you know, oh, you're going through this thing. You're going to go in that shower, and they're going to close the door. And they're telling them they're taking a shower. The cows don't know they're going in there, and they're going to get killed or whatever. And that's the one thing that she came up with was how to make it so it's less stressful. The cows don't get upset. They're not clamoring. They don't, they're not in fear. Um and they go willingly and peacefully to their death. Now, her reason wasn't to be sadistic. Her reason was to, again, show respect. They don't need to um, be worked up. You don't need to taunt them. You don't need to hurt them. They go willingly because they follow the other cow in front of them. If you do it a certain way, they'll do it willingly. They'll walk right in there, and then it's like, bam, and they're gone, and it doesn't have to be cruel. It doesn't have to be sadistic. It doesn't have to be something awful. Now, taking that and putting it on a human level, oh my God, it's monstrous when you think about it that way. And I guess maybe like Animal Farm and movies like that kind of put that in a perspective of like, hey, you know, what if you what what if what if they had the same abilities to that they think and feel, and you know, you're doing that or whatever. The Czechist um, is a an observation of how things worked um, after the Russian Revolution and then later on under Stalin. Um, they would come up with lists of enemies of the people. And then list of enemies of uh, comrades Stalin or list of enemies of the Soviet Union, but at this time it's um, the che- the the Czechists um, were the guys that um, of course you had different levels you had you had the the one guys that were the administrators and um, I I want to go to the point the time of like Stalin but um when he was the supreme leader but you can go back even before that when when Lenin was in charge and Stalin was just one of his underlings and then whatever but they would come up with the uh, uh enemies lists and they would uh go round these people up for whatever reason a lot of times especially when you got into the great terror and when comrade Stalin would say 
okay, uh, they'd bring him a list of uh, 2,000 people, and he'd say, he would just look at the list and, and write on there, uh, more, or I want 1,000 more or whatever. They would encourage people to tell on their neighbors. They would encourage uh, kids to tell on their parents if their parents, they saw their parents doing anything wrong, or vice versa, or... Uh, as we did, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we would say, you know, if you, uh, if you give us information about somebody, we'll give you money. Uh, if you know any Al Qaeda and these people would say, well, my fucking neighbor, I've never been able to stand that son of a bitch. He fucking fucks up my yard. He makes too much noise. Yeah. He's a fucking, uh, Al Qaeda. So we'd go get him and he might not even be. So it encouraged people to, you know, you, you want to protect yourself and your kids and your family. So you say, okay, uh, comrade Stalin wants at least three people that you know that are fucking enemies of the state or comrade Lenin. And so they would come up with names. Well, you just give them some names. And, it, you know, definitely it was going to be somebody you didn't like probably or whatever. But if you don't, we're going to take you. So they would get these people. And the way the system worked was they'd take you in and they would get a confession out of you one way or another. You're going to say, like they would say, well, so-and-so, you know, well, hell, he signed a con- fucking confession. Well, shit, if you sit in there and beat the fucking shit out of him forever, you know, he's going to sign a confession or torture him or whatever. And sometimes it wasn't even to that point in the one um, movie. Was it the confession with um, um, Yves Montan? They just bring you in there. They wouldn't let you sleep. They'd make you uh, walk around your cell and, 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 you know, just keep walking and walking. Wouldn't let you sleep. If you if they told you, okay, now you can go to sleep, you have to lay flat on your back with your arms to your side and your legs out straight and you fall asleep for two seconds. They come back in, throw a bucket of water and you wake you up. They break you down psychologically. Doesn't necessarily have to be physical torture. And then they eventually get you to sign everything. And you, you know, that doesn't mean you did it. That's why torture doesn't fucking work. That's why when people say, well, yeah, it fucking, it fucking works. We got them motherfuckers and we tortured them. Well, then that means that every goddamn person that's Stalin or Paul Pot or whoever or, or Himmler or Heydrich or whoever fucking put to death, every single one of them was a fucking spy, an enemy and everything. Little kids, old people, they all were millions, millions of them. no. They can fucking break you down and make you admit that you fucking killed fucking Sharon Tate and fucking, uh, you know, JFK at the same time. You know, they, they, they can torture you with violence and they can torture you just by fatigue, uh, sleep deprivation uh, and everything like that. And you will tell everything and you'll admit to anything and everything they want you to sign. Just so it'll be over with, just because you're fucking completely exhausted and you'll just do it. It's proven. And the Czechists, that's what they would do. They had the, the, the main guy in the movie, which I guess would be Igor Suryev, um, and uh, th- he was like an administrator guy, and he was the guy that, that would they would give the list to. They would have the, the each people people on the list would come in the room and him and these other guys would sit there and, you know, say, um, okay, uh, Bill Smith, you're accused of doing this, 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 and this, uh, guilty. Next guy comes in or a little kid or a girl or something like, you know, woman or whatever. Uh, Jane Smith, uh, you're accused of this, 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 you've been found guilty, you know, bam take you down in the basement of the Lubyanka prison. Uh, they'd have you take off all your fucking clothes. They'd have about six of them. Uh, wood door, uh, women, men, didn't matter who it was. Uh, good looking women, big fat, you know, every 
body shape, every size, every strip all your clothes off, set them there on the table. Okay. Walk over and face the door. And they'd have like, if they had six planks that walked over to the door, they'd have six guys with six pistols. And as soon as you got over there and put your nose up against that fucking door, uh, they'd fucking shoot you in the back of the head. And then they had, a a, um, the reason they had the planks that went over to the doors was there on the either side of the plank. It was like, a troughs full of water because after you know they have to wash off all the blood with hoses and stuff like that off the doors off the planks off the bodies and everything and just like the um the um slaughterhouse in uh the temple grandin movie they had a chute and they would hook these ropes up to the to the around the ankles of the men women children old people whatever and they would haul them up with a pulley by a rope up and put them on this uh, truck and they'd have this big truck um uh, that was just full of naked dead people stacked on top of each other. Just like I said, like come and see when the guy walked out of the place and on the, the whole side of that, of that house on the outside was just stacked to the fucking roof of the house, uh, of bodies of just these dead people, naked dead people. And that's how this was the whole fucking movies like that. Now, of course you have, you see how it wears on the guys that are doing it. And you also see some of the people try and talk their way out of it up until the last minute. Some of the people you have every once in a while. And then most of the time, the, the guys just get to be where they're good shots and they shoot them in the back of the head and they all go down. But you have every once in a while where somebody tries to fucking run or somebody tries to attack one of the guys or you shoot them and it doesn't kill them right away and they're screaming or something like that and they have to go over and shoot them and they just shoot them like a matter of fact just bam 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 like nothing like nothing like when you were a little kid and there were ants out on the ground and you'd take your finger or, or your shoe or whatever and step on them like they're nothing and it's just like that it that's why when somebody said it was um uh disturbing it's not disturbing like um august underground where you're seeing physical torture with like a barbed wire or somebody the the um hillside stranglers fucking raping and torturing somebody or or cutting them with a knife or skinning them or doing shit like that it's a matter of fact here here bam 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 stand against the wall stand against the wall stand against the wall stand against the wall bam 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 stand against the wall stand against the wall you come down here take your clothes off put them on the table okay Go over there, stand against the wall, stand against the wall, stand against the wall. And then they're taking the bodies out, taking the bodies just over and over and over and over and over and over. And the people that are doing it are human beings. And they show the wear of that on them. It can get to the point, whether it's even in war, where it's, you see the guys in war and they see horrific violence and they're doing it every day and they're doing it every day and they're scared, but they're doing it every day and they get to where they're doing it. And every once in a while, somebody cracks because they realize, oh, my God, what are we doing? Oh, my God. You know, what am I? I'm, a, I'm fucking a, a mon This is monstrous. Da, da, da. And you have all that. So it is a really good movie and it shows how far people can go and people following a system and people being fanatical about a system or the uh, whole thing that the Nazi, uh, when they put him on trial and they said, I was just following orders, I was just following orders. Or, you know, I'm doing this for the fatherland. I'm doing this for Comrade Lenin. I'm doing this for the system. I'm doing it for so my family won't get put against the wall. 
but it's just, it's insanity. And the thing is, I know pe- some people could probably watch this and say, well, what's the big deal? All they did is fucking, they'd stand against the light, just shoot them. It's fucking human beings. And this happened. And it happened every day, day after day, after day, after day, hour after hour. This wasn't just, they take six guys down there and shoot them. And then uh, two days later, they take six. This was six, six, six. Stand against the doors. Take your clothes off. Walk over. Stand against the doors. Stand against the doors. And they taken the bodies out. And they had the one the one woman who would clean and wash off the the thing. Well, we better get some new doors. These have too many holes in them. It's in fucking sanity. If you could participate in that, when they say like uh, in the movie Apocalypse Now, you know, and how insane. Uh, Colonel Kurtz and not just Colonel Kurtz, but how insane the whole fucking war was. You're murdering people and they're murdering you and you're burning people alive. You're burning little kids alive. You're torturing people. You're hooking a field phone up to them and electrocuting them so they'll confess. And then you're fucking cutting their heads off and you're cutting their fucking ears off and wearing them around your neck. And you're doing body uh, fucking, uh, you know, the kill counts and all that shit. And uh, just insanity. War is insanity. This fanaticism is insanity. Fanaticism about anything is insanity. When you blindly follow anything without question it is insanity it is stupid it is dumb i don't care if it's following uh christian religion without question if it's following muslim religion without question if it's following the 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 rules of the state the, the rules of the comrade stalin uh or of uh uh, the great leader or whoever or fucking Darth Vader. I don't care if you're following blindly. Uh, it's fucking insanity. And you're doing this kind of shit. You can justify it by saying this is the other. This is the guy that fucking blew up the World Trade Center. This is the guy that fucking killed this person or they slaughtered babies or that. Or they'll tell you this day, the Hun, they fucking eat babies. The evil Japs, they fucking sneak attack and they're sadistic and they tortured our guys. Those fuckers in Vietnam, you know, they put them in the Hanoi Hill and they'll demonize the enemy. And pretty soon you'll be doing this shit. And thinking you're doing it for God and fucking country or whatever because the evil, evil, evil. And they're telling you these people are evil and they're evil and they're doing this and they're horrible and they're evil and evil and evil. It's insanity. <laughs> and this movie is really, really good. It's it, They did it right with this one too. Hour and 30 minutes. It's a good movie. It's It's an important movie, I think. It's not readily available. It's on YouTube, I believe, for free. So you can find it and watch it. I think it's an important movie because I think that it shows, I think people need to watch this. And again, people that watch horror movies and they see Freddy Krueger and they see uh, Jason or Michael Myers or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have Eyes or they see uh, something like that and they think, ah, what's the big deal? This is nothing. Hell, I thought it was going to be something... You know, when they say disturbing, I thought it was going to be something horrible. This is fucking insanity. This was real. This happened every goddamn fucking day. <coughs> so maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm a fucking douche. But this is the kind, this is a horror movie. Um, 
And if you watch it and say, well, you know, it's not that it's not. Ah, it's not. I've heard people like say when they see come and see ah, it wasn't that bad. What was the big deal? It's. When you're watching um, Freddy Krueger, you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like that. All that shit's entertainment. All that shit. Now, you could say Ed Gein or uh, the Manson family or uh, Hillside Strangler, Night Stalker and these uh, Ted Bundy and they're doing this shit. That shit you're seeing on that screen is for fucking entertainment. When you're watching Freddy Krueger and he cuts somebody open or Leatherface or something like that. It may even be based on a real story, but you're not seeing it. You're not smelling it. That's not your wife. That's not your kid. That's not someone you know. Even if it's not somebody you know, a human fucking being that's uh, scared for their life, that's trembling that this fucker is going to commit the most evil acts on them as the last day and they're in terror. Your terror is entertainment and you've numbed yourself to it because it doesn't affect you. It's just something you're seeing on TV. But if you went out and some fucker snatched you off the goddamn street and that was like Leatherface or Freddy Krueger or Ted Bundy or something like that, John Wayne Gacy, and he had you tied up and he was electrocuting you and torturing you and raping you every goddamn fucking day uh, and you have absolutely no fucking hope, that's fucking reality. And if, you know, I'm, you know, horror movies, I'm not saying anything against them because, but you see people getting desensitized. They're getting desensitized to a movie. They're getting desensitized to entertainment. I watched John Wick shoot fucking, uh, I don't know how many people in the head two or three times. Uh, each, each person he kills and he killed a fucking bushel basket of them. Okay. That was entertainment or whatever. This is a movie, too. These are actors and everything, but this shit happened. And this shit is something that how can we go that far? And it's happened. Mass murder, political mass murder or whatever, even, you know, my God, go to the American Civil War and all the people that got killed there. And, uh, you know, we watch a movie and we're like, you know, those are, you know, it's cannon fodder and it's people who you don't know. And if they want you to feel for this person who gets killed, yeah, whatever. Um, but, I mean, how many generations can we go back where it's mass fucking murder? This is, this genocide where these people are being rounded up like fucking cattle like uh you know lesser things they're nothing um and rounded up and killed on an assembly line and it happened and it happened uh you know every goddamn fucking day and they get these guys that are doing it like the Nazi concentration camp guards and the people that worked there that gathered up all the gold and the teeth and the watches and the hair and the shoes and the the clothing and everything and pile them up so they can be recycled and used and sold and everything. The people that would have to go in and take the bodies and, you know, by the feet and by the ankles and throw them in the oven or throw them before they did the ovens when they had the mass graves and things like that in this 
people are rotting and these are human fucking beings that just had families and lives and sat down for Christmas and are thinking about what they're going to do for summer vacation or, you know, what am I going to have for lunch today? Or I got to go to work. You know, I got to do this. I got to pick up something for my kid's birthday or I got to go home and feed my dog. And the next thing you know, they're in some pen and they're marched to their doom. Uh, and it's just, you know, I don't know. It just, it's for me, it just hits me, uh, that how people can be convinced and become part of a machine, become part of a system of mass slaughter and genocide, um, in such a way and I've heard like uh, even uh, when Ryan Gosling was in The Believer where he played a, a Nazi skinhead and he they were in a diner and they were taught they were being assholes, of course, because they're fucking skinheads. And they were confronting. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the diner or if it was in uh, uh, like a class or something. And they were confronting these old Jewish people. And they said, you know, Ryan Gosling says to this man. He says, why didn't you do something? Because the guy was telling a story to get through to them about how they took his daughter, this little girl, and they took her away from him, pried him, pried her from his hands. And uh, I think took her over and took a uh, rifle, knocked her down on the ground and took a rifle and took the butt of a rifle and stoved her fucking head in right in front of it in a Nazi concentration camp. And Ryan Gosling looked at him and said, why didn't you do something? He goes, what? And he said, well, you know, why didn't you do something? If that was me and that was my little girl, I would have done something. I would have done anything. I would have jumped up. I would have fucking jumped on that guy and bit his fucking throat out. I would have at least tried. You didn't do anything. You just fucking stood there. And that was your fucking daughter. And he stomped her fucking head in. And you just stood there. And the guy said, you have no fucking idea what you're talking about. Standing here. I could say right now, standing here or sitting here, if in that same situation, man, I just would think to myself, it's do or die. I'm going to fucking die anyway. So I might as well at least try and take some of these cocksuckers with me. And I'm going to, okay, I'm just going to wait for my perfect moment. And I'm going to leap on that motherfucker and I'm going to grab him and I'm going to fucking try and gouge his eyes out first. Hit him in the throat. And I'm going to get him down. I'm going to try and get his guy. And then in two seconds, the other guys would have hit me over the fucking head. They would have killed my fucking daughter in front of me. They would have killed me. They would have killed everybody else. They would have bashed your fucking head and they would have shot you. Uh, they hadn't killed his daughter yet. So he's thinking, I got to do whatever I can to protect her. What if she's still alive? What if she's not even there, but she's still alive and I do this and then they go kill her or she's here beside me and you know, they're getting ready to kill her. What am I going to do? I'm in shock. I'm standing there. I'm malnourished. I fucking can't do anything. Uh, there's fucking 20 guys standing here with machine guns. If I take one step, they're going to fucking stab me with a bayonet. They're going to get me down and beat me to death. That's like in the, the pawnbroker with uh, Rod Steiger. Um, he and I, I haven't seen it in so long, but I think it was him and his wife and they take him to the concentration camp. So they separate the men and the women. And so it's his wife that he's been in love with, uh, you know, all his life. And they separate him and they're working in the camps. And I can't remember if they were. They're doing something horrific to her 
and he was a guy who had to clean or do something. I can't remember what it was. And he was walking by this window and I don't know if they were raping her or, or what in this room. I, 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 I really, I just can't remember off the top of my head. I've only seen it once. Got it on VHS down in the basement. It's a really good movie. But uh, this guard sees him looking through the window and he's seeing his wife uh, being brutalized or raped or whatever. And this guard comes over and just takes his head and, and smashes it through the window and sits there and makes him watch. He can't do anything. You're a tough guy. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You don't know what the fuck you're, you think every single one of those fucking people in the, the situation that was in the checkist, uh, that there weren't some men there that were physically fit, that were strong, that were tough, that went out every night and they didn't take no shit from anybody. They might've been a professional boxer, an Olympic wrestler or a fucking, uh, Kung Fu fucking master or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Or a guy that could go out and everybody was like, man, I don't fuck with him. I saw him out in the bar and he knocked the shit out of this guy. Or he's a, he was a ex special forces guy or something like that. They take you, you take your fucking clothes off. You stand against that fucking door and they shoot your ass. And sure, there were some guys that probably did try and fight. And every single one of them, they fucking put in the same fucking truck, hung up by their ankles on the pulley, pulled them up naked uh, with a hole in the back of their head and fucking put them on the truck. Every single one of them. Every single one of those guys in those concentration camps, you don't think they love their fucking wife. They love their kid. They love their brother, their neighbor, their friend, humanity, their God, whatever. And they wanted to live, you know, you're, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. There were people, the French resistance, there were like a, uh, I'm going by movie things here, but like escape from Sobibor where they did escape and they, that was a true story. And they went in the woods and then they fought and everything. Yeah. That shit happened, but you don't know what the fuck you're going to do. And you're fooling your fucking self because um, it happened and it happened to millions of people. And I'm not just talking about with the Soviet Union and with uh, Nazi Germany. I'm, you know, look at Cambodia Look at uh, in Yugoslavia and all these places where there's been mass just like over history, over centuries. And the shit happened and the people fucking the cattle, you know. Um, so anyway, I, I got off on a tangent there. Uh, that's a good movie to watch. Again, like that movie, a uh, companion piece for, say, maybe Schindler's List or uh, Come and See... Um, realistic movies about the real horror of war and the real horror of genocide, uh, the killing fields, uh, with Sam Waterston. That's another one that would be good for this one. Uh, this is a, uh, again, you had so many years with, um, Russian movies because of the Soviet union and because of, you know, the, the political system, anything they put out it was you know, a, a propaganda movie or whatever. Uh, and then uh, when Stalin was in office, uh, how they changed history uh, and how they would change things. So you didn't know what the real history was and what they just wanted you to think or and everything. And um, so when that whole system went kaput and people could make movies, you know, and they were making Solaris and they were making um, uh, the uh, stalker and and uh, the checkist or whatever, and, and, and these movies were coming out, 
uh, they made some interest there, you know, that's, uh, and I think from what they said about this movie, um, when the Soviet Union fell and it came out and everything, uh, now it, it's hard to find because things have tightened up again as far as that kind of shit goes. Uh, that, um, I guess like since Putin is back in charge or is in charge and, uh, they kind of take a tighter rein on what they're letting out and, uh, what they're producing and everything. Now, like I said, with the Chinese movies, <coughs> you're seeing fucking action movies. You're seeing fucking like Rambo, like movies and stuff like that, uh, that can be very entertaining. Um, you know, so you never know what you're going to get. Um, I watched the movie Stonewall. Um, this was about, um, the, it, it, is the precursor and the lead up to the Stonewall riots, um, which was a, um, an important, uh, event in, um, gay America and gay culture in America. Um, basically there are a couple of documentaries out about the same subject. Um, I think one, there are two different ones that I have, I haven't seen, but I want to see, uh, one is the lead up to, uh, the, the gay culture in America before Stonewall. And then one that is about what happened and, and then after to the people, I guess, some of the people that were involved and everything. Um, this was directed by Roland Emmerich, uh, stars Jeremy Irvin, Johnny Beauchamp, and Joey King. Uh, it also has Ron Perlman in it. I had to clarify something about Ron Perlman's character in this. Um, in New York, um, they had gay bars back in the day. <laughs> And but the gay bars were and I think it, it's like when you hear Friedkin talking about making cruising, the gay bars were run by the mafia, the Italian mafia. Uh, now, this is 1969. And, you know, um, I'm trying to think what some of the movies that I was I watched and talked about on the show. We talked about um, shit. Um, hang on a second. Just like, uh, the one biker movie, um, uh, about the, uh, cafe racers and everything in, uh, Great Britain and, um, the, the two main characters were, I think they, I can't remember if the, it was just the one that was gay and the other one had a girlfriend, but the other, the other guy was in love with the one guy. Um, but whether it was in England or in the United States, they had, they had, uh, laws, uh, pertaining to people being homosexual. Now in England, I think a couple of the movies that I was, that I talked about on the show or that we, we reviewed in the, on the show. And then there were several of them that I just watched myself because it, they starred Dirk Bogard. And um, one of them was Victim and uh, I think The Damned. And, uh, of course, he was in Night Porter and um, um, 
Bridge Too Far and so, several movies. Uh, and I really like him as an actor and everything. Um, but when you watch movies where he was a homosexual man in England and um, he was being blackmailed. And at that time, there was a lot of that going on uh, where people would blackmail homosexual men. Because in England, in that time period, if you were found out, found to be engaging in homosexual activity, you could go to prison, you know, get a prison sentence. And this is the way with Stonewall in America at this time. Um, gay men were not allowed if they were congregating. I don't even think they were. They weren't even supposed to congregate together. It was against the law for them to congregate together, and it was against the law to serve them alcohol. So when you would go into these bars that the um, mafia ran, I don't think they had... It was like one of those deals, I believe, and I'm just going from memory here. Uh, I think that you know you, you paid a cover charge to get in, and then they, had, they would like you buy drugs in there. If they had any kind of alcohol, it might have been beer, but I don't even think they had that. I think I remember the one guy saying, yeah, they can't, they can't serve alcohol to gays or whatever, but, um, uh, but he said, we can come in here and you get the best, you know, the best drugs or whatever. So the mafia guys, you know, if they get a cut of that too. Um, the one thing I said about the Ron Perlman character was um, when the – this is kind of through the eyes of this young guy who was from like the Midwest, who played on the football team and everything, and that is uh, Jeremy Irvin. And he, he, his dad is the football coach. He's on the football team and everything, and he um, is gay. Nobody knows it, of course, because at that time, you know, it's all everybody's in the closet, and uh, he and this other guy on the football team kind of hit it off, and you know. Uh, he's exposed and he runs away from home and he goes to New York and he goes to, you know, the, uh, gay community, uh, in, in New York at that time, neighborhood or whatever. And, um, again, it's just like when you watch cruising, it probably would be considered like maybe in the same neighborhoods and stuff, um, where, he goes and it's more open. The people on the streets, you know, the guys walking, holding hands and everything. There's drag queens, there's transgender people and this and that. Um, they go to a bar and um, Ron Perlman's there and he comes over and the, the, the protagonist, the young guy, good looking young guy, you know, baby face. And Ron Perlman approaches him and he's got his head shaved and everything. And he goes, hey, you know, hey, how are you? I'm... Uh, Murphy or whatever and the other guys that he had met up on with the street that he kind of become friends with you know they were like you know come on you know come on Danny come on come on Danny let's go and they said you want to stay away from that guy they call him the skull s-k-u-l-l skull and um, they said he used to be a professional wrestler and now he's a pimp and he pimps out these young gay prostitutes so they were worried that he was going to try and turn this young Danny guy out because he was new and naive and, you know, didn't have any money and everything. And then I looked the guy's name up and it said uh, Ron Perlman's name it, it was uh, in the movie was Murphy. Well, there was a professional wrestler named Skull Murphy. 
and he wrestled for years. Um, him and Brute Bernard were a tag team, and they had their head shaved bald. And uh, they also went by – it was uh, Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. And the, in some places, the name of the team was The Skulls. And uh, so I had to ask uh, some of my pro wrestling you know, historian friends and people like that. You know, I said, I'm watching this movie. And they said, you know, Ron Perlman's playing this guy. And they said, they, you know, they, they call him the skull. And he was an ex-professional wrestler. And his last name in the movie is Murphy. Well, one guy came back and, you know, it said Ed Murphy. And I guess um, Skull Murphy's real name was John. And um, he said, no, it's not. The guy claimed he, the, the guy was, the guy that uh, Ron Perlman is playing was a real guy. He claimed to be the wrestler Skull Murphy, but he wasn't. And I think he went around telling people that to, you know, be a badass or whatever. But there were two or, th- I think there was only like two people <coughs> that ever used the name Skull Murphy in wrestling. And the one was the one that teamed with Brute Bernard. He was real famous and wrestled all over the country, wrestled Madison Square Garden a bunch of times, you know, his tag team and everything. And the other one was from England, who never came to the United States. And uh, Skull Murphy, or John Murphy, the real guy, uh, committed suicide. So when I heard heard that, I can't remember what year he committed suicide. Let me look it up. Because that's why I thought, well, maybe that's why he committed suicide. But uh, it wasn't. I think he had um, kidney kidney failure, kidney disease, or cancer, or something like that. And his mom or dad or something had died of it. And it was he remembered it being a real painful death. Uh, so he killed himself. Uh, yeah, well, he died in 1970, and this movie takes place in 1969. But like I said, though, the one guy, um, this guy's name was John Joseph Murphy, and the guy, the real guy that Ron Perlman plays uh, was Ed Murphy. And, and they said, I guess it is a known thing that that guy was telling everybody that he was Skull Murphy, the wrestler, but he wasn't. So anyway, that was just something I had to clear up because I'm a wrestling fan and i thought oh shit maybe that's why he killed himself you know but it, it wasn't um it says let's see death uh murphy and bernard were scheduled to face and and this guy was still wrestling up until the end um were to uh, face the kentuckian and mr wrestling before the event his wife found him dead in his apartment having overdosed on sleeping pills of apparent suicide um and like it even says on here that uh there was a British guy who took on the name um, Skull Murphy and everything, but uh, that was much later. Anyway, um, getting back to the movie, um, when you look at it, only rates as a five on IMDb. Um, and looked at the reviews. A lot of the reviews come from people from the gay community. Uh, and they were saying that it was portray it was a shitty portrayal and it wasn't it's called Stonewall but it's it's not even about Stonewall it's a, it, it's like when they say that um say they make a movie and they have to have the great white hope that uh you know um like people said about um green book um they had to have Vigo Mortensen's character be the great white hope that saves this or that or uh saves the poor black guy or poor gay black guy or whatever um and that's kind of what they were saying about this now the character was gay the the main guy uh but that they brought you know he wasn't they said that the movie should have been about the community 
in that time, in that place, and they brought in this guy who was the outsider, the fish out of water. Even though he was gay, he was the young, fresh-faced fish out of water guy. They bring him in, and everything goes through his eyes and everything. So that that was one complaint. There's probably a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of the gist I got out of it. And by reading that and then watching the movie, I can see certain points to some of this stuff. And I felt after I watched the movie that I wish I would have, I rather, uh, I wish, and I will, I wanted to watch the documentaries about uh, the event, the Stonewall riots and and that kind of stuff. Uh, This would be a good companion piece uh, for uh, with like the movie Milk uh, with Sean Penn. Uh, and again, you know, you could say about, you know, even with the movie cruising, I know the gay community had a big problem with that movie. So you could say it was a companion piece because some of the people in the gay community have a problem with this movie and with cruising, but also because they kind of took place at the sort of the same time, uh, in the same culture, in the same, in New York city. So it's something to look at again. I want to, I want to seek out those documentaries and watch them. Um, I watched two John Hawks movies, um, which were, uh, small town crime, which I thought was really good. And both of them, John Hawks plays a, um, a, a gumshoe. So I guess these are kind of neo noir maybe because they could easily, uh, both, both movies could easily, uh, be played out in like the 1940s or fifties or whatever. Um, and be uh, Humphrey Bogart or, uh, you know, James Cagney or whoever. John Hawks, I thought, was really good in both of these, and I like seeing him as a private detective or a gumshoe or whatever you want to call him. Um, I liked both of them very much. Uh, I definitely like in in small-town crime, he's an ex-cop who's an alcoholic and... um, I like his car in this like a uh he drives around in this big old um what's this thing come up here? Hang on a second. Oh, I must have clicked on uh, my printer icon. Um but he drives around in this big like a uh, old uh, souped up Chevelle and uh the um the bad guys in this there's a couple of bad guys in this. <coughs> I think Jeremy Ratch is that who that is? Let me see. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, the other people that you might know in this are, are uh, Robert Forster uh, with his horrible hair plugs and Clifton Collins Jr. Um, but I thought this was really good. Um, I like the cast of characters, the seedy cast of characters. I like that um, John Hawks is a flawed uh, hero and. Um, like I said, he was a cop. He so he knows the ins and outs. He knows the bullshit, and he knows how to uh, how the system works and how to get around things and do things. He's still a drunk. He's still an alcoholic and everything. He's trying to um, find. He takes it upon himself to try and find out what happened in this uh, the this uh, death of this girl that he just happens to you know, stumble on, they show his backstory and it really is kind of shitty and sad and everything, how things went down for him. And he's kind of like a born loser kind of a guy who's trying to, uh, get some, you know, redemption for himself, but also for, uh, this 
person and what happened to him. Uh, so I really like that one. I recommend that one big time. And, of course, my computer's locking up now again, I think. No, it didn't. Okay. Back to Stonewall. And the other one was the movie Too Late. And, of course, again, this is John Hawks. Um, this one, I, I have seen both of these before. Again, I, I watched them back-to-back -back because I, I just kind of liked, uh, number one, John Hawks. Number two, he's playing a private detective in, in both of them and sort of in a similar type of a thing, an old-style, old-school kind of a, of a detective story. Um, and it's done really well. This one is artistically it's shot um a little more in, in a little more interesting way um on uh, first of all the dialogue and everything is definitely uh, uh more neo-noir you could hear like mike Hand that it is and then when things piece together um i really liked how that was done uh some good looking ladies in this <laughs> um there is one, I don't know if I'll be able to find her name. Is it uh, Dichon Lachman? I think she was on a TV show. But um, I, I really, oh, no, no, no. This uh, uh, Dichon Lachman was on um, um, Altered Carbon, uh, the, the uh, movie Altered Carbon um which I really like the science fiction movie. And she was really good in that. And I think she is on um, Animal Kingdom, the TV series based on the movie Animal Kingdom. Um, she was really good. In, I really liked her in Altered Carbon, and I really liked her in this. And because the thing is shot out of order, um, you kind of have, you kind of get a perception for somebody and what the relationship is. And then the next thing you know, it they show you don't realize that the next scene i think they said every every scene was shot was like 15 minutes long so you got 15 minutes 15 minutes 15 minutes and there are things that you there is like a part of it that you don't see you see john hawks interacting with somebody and they just meet and he's interacting with them and then there's a point where time goes by and then the next scene you see how things play out i i don't want to for people that haven't seen this i don't want to give stuff away you also have in this one um jeff fahey robert forster again uh let's see joanna cassidy from um god um blade runner and what was the one with gene hackman and tommy lee jones where shit uh not the contract um was it that's a good movie too um tommy lee jones and Gene Hackman. Well, I know you all you all know who Joanna Cassidy is, but I'm just looking up for myself. Uh, Blade Runner Under Fire, because that was uh, Nick Nolte and Gene Hackman. I wonder if she had something going on with Gene Hackman. The Package. Yeah, that was a good movie. Um, 
What else do we have? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Fourth Protocol. I saw that. Club Paradise. I think I saw that too. <laughs> okay, I've seen a lot of stuff there in it. Night Games. Who was in that? An erotic thriller. Holy shit. Eroticism. Uh, just kidding. Uh, what else we got here? Lonely Hearts. Was that Jeff Bridges? No, that's um, Eric Roberts and Beverly D'Angelo. I don't know if I've seen that. Why am I going down the uh, Joanna Cassidy thing when we're about ready to wrap the show up and we're on three hours and 20 fucking one minutes? Okay, enough Joanna Cassidy. It's. I thought I was going to look at the uh, thing and see how long I've been going here, and I thought it was like uh, I, I was just getting to about two hours and I was just going to cut it off, like I was saying how to cut things off when you, before you uh, go too far. And I've been going fucking three hours and 22 minutes. So it must have been a pretty good show, huh? <laughs> well, I got off on that tangent uh, with my uh, pussy uh, snowflake shit. Anyway, all right, guys. I'm going to go ahead and shut it down. <laughs> you got to know when to quit. And uh, it is, Jesus Christ, it's 11 fucking 30. Hell, I've been doing this whole fucking morning. All righty. Hope you enjoyed the show. And until um, next time, this is Dr. Zom saying Zom. Oot. And Loaf saying, uh, bye. bye.